Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, General Conference Postmortem, The Priesthood Session. Tonight, I'm joined by my good friend Jonathan Streeter from Thoughts on Things and Stuff to discuss the most recent General Conference Priesthood Session from April 2021. We are working diligently to make it all the way through last general conference before the next general conference rolls around. We've completed the first session, the morning session on Saturday. We've almost completed the Saturday afternoon session. Actually, we weren't able to fit all of the Saturday afternoon session into the last podcast. There are three talks remaining. We will cram those three talks into tonight's episode. So it will be the last three talks of the Saturday afternoon session, as well as the entirety of the general priesthood session from Saturday night. I want to thank all of my listeners who have donated to the Radio Free Mormon program. Your contributions mean the world to me. I also want to encourage all of you who have not yet made a donation to go to RadioFreeMormon.org right now, click on the donate button, and make your own personal contribution. $10 a month, $20 a month, $50 a month, whatever you can afford. Your contributions will keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. And now, on to tonight's discussion of the General Priesthood Session from General Conference, April 2021. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Talk on Things and Stuff, where we are joined once again by Radio Free Mormon. Radio Free Mormon, how are you doing today? I am great. Hi, Yu-Gi-Oh! Yeah, we got Yugi as a co-host. He promises to be good and to not interfere, but he reneges on those promises more often than not. <laughs> Well, I'm so excited to be here again today to talk about the most recent general conference from April of 2021. All right. Now, last time we were ambitiously trying to get through the entire Saturday afternoon session. One of those talks ended up being pretty in-depth, and so we didn't get to go all the way through it. So let's start where we left off, which uh, I believe was with the good uh, Elder Anderson. Yes, it was. By the way, it seems sinful to spend more time talking about General Conference than it does to actually listen to the General Conference. But we've got three talks left in the afternoon session of Saturday before we get to what we're supposed to be talking about tonight, which is the General Priesthood session from yeah. that evening. But this talk here by Elder Neil Anderson, we do need to spend a little bit of time on because this is one that got some attention when he gave it, mainly because uh, he talked about abortion. And a lot of people were saying, where is this coming from? Why is this suddenly an issue? And I don't know the answer to that necessarily, but I do think I have a clue at this point. Uh, first off, you know, I thought it had been forever since I'd heard about abortion. Then I went on to the LDS General Conference Corpus website to search for the word abortion. I found out, well, it was only two years ago. It was the last time that it was talked about. So I guess mm. my memory and the memory of some others is a little bit... Uh, failing in that regard. It really wasn't that long ago. And it's been talked yeah. about with some regularity. But it did strike people as a little bit unusual that he'd be talking about abortion uh, in this general conference, April 2021. However, however, I think I figured it out. And the reason why yeah. is if you if you look at the context, uh, the reason he's talking about abortion is because the church is hemorrhaging members. Now, that may sound strange. 
at first. But if you look at the context, he's talking about three things. First off, he's talking about, hey, you ladies, you sisters, you need to be pumping out more kids. Okay. We need more Mormons in the church. And that's your responsibility. And we'll talk about that a little bit too. And then he talks about the wonders of adoption, right? And he tells this beautiful story about how uh, his grandson is married to a woman who herself was adopted out by her LDS mom who got pregnant when she was uh, young and decided not to have an abortion, right? Hmm. Not to have an abortion, but to go ahead and uh, carry the child to term, give birth to the, the baby, and then adopt it out through LDS social services to a good LDS family. So I think that when you look at it in context, all of this uh, gels together, which is we need more Mormons and we don't want you, um, well, killing any Mormons before they're born. Uh, I, I'm sure that they have it in their mind that there are the abortion is such a problem right now that they're missing a significant percentage of potential Mormons through abortion, or is it just more of a cautionary tale? I think they've got to get members any way they can. And this is a way for members to actually produce new members. And so that's what they need to focus on, I think. Now, I do mm -hmm. want to say, I don't think that Elder Anderson uh, thinks that abortion is bad only in the case of Mormon mothers giving birth to Mormon babies. Okay, I'm sure he thinks that it's, it's, it's bad across the board. And I also don't fault Elder Anderson for talking about the position that the church has on abortion. I think everybody knows that this is the position of the church on abortion and talking about it in general conference. I don't think that's remarkable, but I do think it's interesting that in the context of it, that's what he appears to be saying. And we have a few. Do you have a few comments about that or did you want to go to the audio clips? I think we should go to the audio clip so that you can directly address what he says. Let me uh, see. The first time cue I have up is 514. Is that where you want to jump to? Yes, please. All right, let's do it. This is where Elder Anderson talks about um, how traumatic having an abortion can be for a woman. Okay, here we go. Oh, hold on. I accidentally pressed the wrong button and I still have it muted. There we go. I don't think that was Elder Anderson. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I don't think it was Elder Anderson. I, I get yet. it all queued up and as soon as it's time to go, it messes up. All right. Elder Marcus B. Nash shared with me the story of a dear 84-year-old woman who during her baptismal interview acknowledged an abortion many years before. With heartfelt emotion, she said, I have carried the burden of having aborted a child every day of my life for 46 years. Nothing I did would take the pain and guilt away. I was hopeless until I was taught the true gospel of Jesus Christ. I learned how to repent, and suddenly I was filled with hope. I finally came to know that I could be forgiven if I truly repented of my sins. How grateful we are for the divine gifts of repentance and forgiveness. There we go. So there's the story, and this is the cautionary tale. I have no reason to doubt the accuracy right. of this story, right? Hold on, repeat that because we lost you for a moment. Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so this is the cautionary tale, right? You don't want to have an abortion 
all you women who are listening to me, because if you do, you'll carry the burden of that for the rest of your life, especially because the people he's talking to are already primarily baptized members and they don't get the advantage of getting baptized again. Ostensibly, they could be forgiven for it, but let's not go there. Just don't have the abortion in the first place. Go ahead and carry the child to term. Either raise it yourself in a good LDS family or adopt it out to another good LDS family. I also think it's interesting that uh, it's talked about how uh, she knows that she can be forgiven of her abortion if I truly repented of my sins, right? Mm. The only thing I, the only reason I think that's interesting is because recently I stumbled upon the section in the church handbook on abortion where it's really not quite so clear as to whether a person can be forgiven for having an abortion. And that's 38.6.1 in the manual. Hashtag, this is not a legalistic religion, but it's 38.6.1 under abortion where it says, as far as has been revealed, a person may repent and be forgiven for the sin of abortion. So maybe they can, maybe they can't, but it looks like they probably can because we don't really know. So we'll go ahead and go with that. Hmm. Okay. So there's that. Um, Then he tells a story about the beauty of adoption, the one I mentioned before about this girl named Emily who grows up. And he says, how grateful we are that Emily and our grandson, Christian, this is the girl who was not aborted by her mom and then was adopted out to a righteous LDS family, was raised righteously and was righteous right. enough before to we get, get... Yep. Before we get to that, RFM, it struck me as I was listening to him relate this story that um, the way it is set up, as far as I understand, is that when a new convert is being interviewed for baptism, it's specifically the elders that would address sins like, have you had a prior abortion? And this is something that came up because a lot of people said they were really uncomfortable having these 19 and 20 year old men interrogate them, you know, young men, the basically kids interrogate them about whether they've had an abortion in the past when these men have like no context, no life experience, uh, simply are passing judgment on that. Uh, is that your understanding as well? Well, yeah, I think that it's up to the missionaries or the district leader, whoever's doing the interview, the baptismal interview to cover those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. But if you're a missionary and something like this comes up, sexual in nature, abortion in nature, murder in nature, um, then they're supposed to say, okay, let's stop right now. You need to talk to either the bishop or the mission president because they're the ones who need to talk about those kinds of things. Mm, Okay. All right. Sorry for that uh, interruption. Continue. No, that's okay. But this is Emily. She grew up, like I said, she was righteous enough to be married to the grandson of an apostle. And so this is a, a very hopeful story. So there's a negative story about the 84 year old lady who's carried the burden of having an abortion with her for uh, virtually her whole life, uh, 46 years, I think she says. But then here's the flip side, right? Flip side is young girl gets uh, pregnant, does not abort her child, and then adopts it out. And that becomes that child then becomes the wife of the grandson of an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think he's covering it from both sides there about abortion. And I think it's clear why it is he wants to talk about it once again in the context of this talk. He goes on to talk about the sacred decision to have a child. Now, this is all very interesting here because what you'll notice is that there's two messages being given. The first is, is that the number of children that a man and a woman have, that's a personal decision. Okay, that's between you and the Lord. But of course, he's going to frame it in the context of 
a story about a woman who has more children, right? And mm -hmm. so it's a personal revelation that she gets from the Lord to have more children. And it's really interesting because they did some research on this. But if we can start by playing timestamp 11.13, that'll right. get us started on this. I got it queued up and here we go. Up to by God. It is concerning that even in some of the most prosperous countries of the world, fewer children are being born. God's commandment for his. Now I can't hear it. Are you there? Hey, decisions uh, to be made. Okay. All of a sudden I couldn't hear it there. Okay. <laughs> uh, as far as I know, it was audible here. So there may be a connection issue on your end. Okay. And I know what he's saying because I can read the script. So I, I apologize. Okay. No, that's okay. I'll turn on the uh, the old closed captioning to help out. Let's uh, back it up a little bit and go from there. Multiply and replenish the earth remains in force. When to have a child and how many children to have are private decisions to be made between a husband and wife and the Lord. With faith and prayer, these sacred decisions can be beautiful, revelatory experiences. Okay, right I there. Share the story. Okay, so... It's a private decision, and with faith and prayer, these sacred decisions can be beautiful, revelatory experiences. This almost falls under the heading of you're entitled to personal revelation as long as it lines up with what the leaders of the church tell you to do. And now he's going to tell this story, of course, not about uh, a lady uh, who prays to God. God says, okay, you got two kids. Hey, that's enough. That's fine. Right? He's never going to tell that yeah. story. Instead, he's going to tell this story, which is really interesting because it actually has some layers in it. But this is a story about some uh, a sister in Southern California. And notice what this story is. All right. We have the Lang family of Southern California. Sister Rebecca Lang writes, in the summer of 2011, life for our family was seemingly perfect. We were happily married with four children, ages nine, seven, five, and three. My pregnancies and deliveries had been high risk and we felt very blessed to have four children thinking that our family was complete. In October, while listening to General Conference, I felt an unmistakable feeling that we were to have another baby. As Legrand and I pondered and prayed, we knew that God had a different plan for us than we had for ourselves. Can we stop it right there? Yeah. Okay, so she's got four children already, three, five, seven, and nine. She's been pumping them out pretty regularly and they, they're high risk. Her pregnancies, plural, and deliveries, plural, had been high risk. We felt very blessed. Basically, they're they're pretty much done with this. But now she's listening to General Conference in October of 2011. And all of a sudden, she gets this unmistakable feeling that we were to have another baby. Now, I, I thought, you know, October 2011 General Conference, I can look that up and maybe... Maybe I can find what talk it was that she was listening to when she received this unmistakable impression that she should have another baby. So I went and I looked and oh my gosh, it is a talk given by Elder Anderson. He's, she was listening to a talk in October 2011 given by Elder Anderson, which by the way is on the exact same subject with the exact same type of um, examples, right? And lo and behold, she gets this impression while listening to him, I need to have another baby. Well, that's the whole point of his telling these stories is to give that impression to members of the church. So it worked. 
So apparently she wrote to him afterward to tell him about her experience listening to his talk in October of 2011, which is why he's in possession of As this we letter. Look into the eyes of a child. Hold Are on. you there? Okay. Yeah, I'm there. Sorry. I'm okay. queuing it up. You, you're doing great, and I appreciate you. So this is so funny because I you got the link there to October 2011. I do. And this is timestamp 1.10. All right. So this is what it is, and this is two paragraphs worth. This is what this sister Lang was listening to in October of 2011 when she decided she and her husband needed to have another baby in spite of the fact they already had four and in spite of the fact that her pregnancies and deliveries had been difficult. All right, here we go. In our day, prophets and apostles have declared the first commandment that God gave Adam and Eve pertain to their potential for parenthood as husband and wife. We declare that God's commandment for his children to multiply and replenish the earth remains in force. This commandment has not been forgotten or set aside in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We express deep gratitude for the enormous faith shown by husbands and wives, especially our wives, in their willingness to have children. When to have a child and how many children to have are private decisions to be made between a husband and wife and the Lord. These are sacred decisions, decisions that should be made with sincere prayer and acted on with great faith. Years ago, Elder James O. Mason of the 70 shared this story with me. The birth of our sixth child was an unforgettable experience. As I gazed on this beautiful new daughter in the nursery just moments after her birth, I distinctly heard a voice declare, there will yet be another and it will be a boy. Unwisely, I rushed back to the bedside of my absolutely exhausted wife and told her the good news. It was very bad timing on my part. Year after year, the Masons anticipated the arrival of their seventh child. Three, four, five, six, seven years passed. Finally, after eight years, the seventh child was born, a little boy. There it is. There it is. Mm. And I will virtually guarantee Whoa. you that that story right there is what Sister Lang was listening to from Elder Anderson, October of 2011, when she received her revelation from God that she needed to have another baby. Is this a picture of James Mason of the 70 with that boy? Oh, uh, wow. I have no idea. How old was this woman when she gave birth to this strapping young lad? That's like a Sarai, that's like a, a Abraham and Sarah uh, thing there. Anyway, all right. Uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. You're right. You're right. So um, I don't know. Maybe. Uh, uh, yeah. Let me just, just see. Let me just see. I got I to gotta hear this. Part. 37 years later. Oof. Anyway, all right. That's an aside. That's beside the point. But um, maybe the, the, I don't know. the maybe the son is older than he looks. I, I don't maybe know. she's that younger like than she looks. What it all comes down to, though, is that you're you're allowing these brethren to override the individual and personal judgment of a woman and her husband, and um, 
and yes, you know, the, the decision is always the woman, but it's, you know, that statement at the center of this is surrounded by all this messaging about, you know, the, the highest purposes that you can serve is to bring another soul into a righteous Mormon home. You know, your role as a mother is most greatly fulfilled by never putting the brakes on that. And, you know, when you drape all of that messaging around this idea of, oh, yeah, you can choose for yourself. It's like, but you know what the right choice is. Yes. And, uh, and and the thing is that devout, pious, well-meaning, wanting to please God, women, given this message, will feel pressure within themselves because of that type of messaging to go ahead and give it another go, apparently into their old age is that story. As long as you force. possibly can, as difficult as the pregnancies and deliveries may be. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's your job. Yeah. So if we can now... Having listened to the October 2011 speech by Elder Anderson yeah. that Sister Lang listened to and then realized she needs to have a fifth child. Now, if we can go back to April 2021 General Conference where Elder Anderson is telling the story about Sister Lang and we'll pick it up where we left off if we can do that. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. After another difficult pregnancy and delivery, we were blessed with a beautiful baby girl. We named her Brielle. She was a miracle. Moments after her birth, while still in the delivery room, I heard the unmistakable voice of the spirit. There is one more. Three years later, another miracle. Mia, Mia, Brielle and Mia are a tremendous joy for our family. She concludes, being open to the Lord's direction and following his plan for us will always bring greater happiness than relying on our own understanding. There you oh, go. Oh, my God. But, oh, okay, you go ahead. You go with your, oh, my God. No. <laughs> that message right there, listening to the brethren, i.e. the voice of the Lord, is always going to bring greater happiness than relying on your own understanding. They're specifically telling you, don't rely on your own judgment rely on this messaging that you're given from the voice of God, i.e. the brethren. That is just such a harmful way to uh, inculcate the members into, you know, shaping their own lives after these men's delusions rather than after their own personal choices. Well, you know, the thing that struck me just as, as I was watching this and listening to it this time now mm -hmm. is how interesting it is that this lady in Southern California has another difficult pregnancy and delivery, right? Blessed with her fifth child, beautiful baby girl. She's a miracle. And what happens? Moments after her birth, while still in the delivery room, I heard the unmistakable voice of the spirit. There is one more. Jonathan, what does that sound like? That sounds like she was modeled. I mean, she, she basically heard a story from Brother Anderson. It planted itself in her psyche and then came up again. Right, because the story that she was listening to, as we all know now, was the story that Elder Anderson told in 2011 about, as I gazed on this beautiful new daughter in the nursery just moments after her birth, I distinctly heard a voice declare, there will yet be another, and it will be a boy. Yeah. So, coincidentally, she has the exact same experience. She's not only prompted by the story to have another baby, but then the story replicates itself in what she hears a voice while still in the delivery room after giving birth to this baby that there what does she say there is one more either that or her husband was watching 
the Return of the Jedi in the background or the Empire Strikes Back and overheard Yoda say, no, there is another. (laughs) (laughs) And she mistook it for the spirit. He does look a little bit like Spencer Campbell. This is true. Anyway, so I I had to do that. No, I think I think the point here is really, really uh, clear. Uh, You know, why does he start out by saying they are concerned about the birth numbers decreasing across the world and especially in Mm. the LDS church? Why does he start out by saying that the command to multiply and replenish the earth has never been revoked? How clear does it have to be? And what do you have to do in order to fulfill this first commandment? Get married. Where? In the temple. Yeah. And in that way, this this whole message uh, also tends to undermine and undercut the messages of elders Gong and Ballard on the subject of our standing before God, not depending on our marital status. Yeah. So now we go to ye shall be free. By the way, did you want to say anything else about that talk? Uh, I don't know. I think it's difficult when you go into this um, particular subject of abortion because it is so close to the moral heart of people both in and out of the church. And it's easy for people to say, well, you know, all these ex-Mormons, as soon as they leave the church, then they're just all for abortion. They just want to abort left and abort right. They just want to, you know, suddenly the issue is all just anything that the church is for, you're automatically against. And... um, And I just, you know, I don't, that's not my position on this. I think that there's an important moral debate around abortion that weighs the, uh, the rights and the autonomy of the mother with the child. And I want to make sure that we are in a society where that debate can take place. And, um, and the answer is not clear cut. And so, you know, I can see them looking at one of the arguments, the people that argue against abortion will say that, well, abortion and things like Planned Parenthood were originally a form of um, eugenics where they wanted to promote abortion among uh, minority populations so that they would limit the population growth of that minority population. And so then they would then look at the statistics and they'd say, okay, how many abortions do these organizations do every year? Are they mostly minorities? And then so that represents a huge culling of the minority population. And that's a problem. And there can be people that look at that and say, well, what do we do with that? I don't know. I mean, is that, is abortion racist? Is it not? I mean, it's, you know, these are like really complex things. There's some historical realities that you have to grapple with in that. And on the other end, you have to also deal with the rights of a mother who gets to make choices for their body. And, and I don't know, it's not simple. And I think our commentary here is really just on how, if you're going to debate these issues and do it on moral and ethical principles, then you can have a discussion. But as soon as you say, well, God has declared this is the right way, then suddenly you're no longer open for having that moral discussion because God, the force of God eliminates the ability for you to have any nuance to look at the other side of the issue from any degree of empathy. And, um, and so that's why it's just always a really difficult subject to go into. Very good. Very good. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. So do we want to go on to the next one or? Next talk, ye shall be free. By the way, this is by Elder, I think it's called pronounced Thierry, might be Thierry K. Mutombo. And if I'm counting this correctly, I haven't gone all the way through the end of general conference. I apologize in complete detail. I think this is one of three black men who are speaking in general conference, My- which may be a record 
I know there was some talk about how they only had two women speak, but maybe they're mm-hmm. making up for it with three black men speaking. Mm-hmm. And I think that should be commented on, commented on. That's why I'm commenting on it and uh, commended. I will note that whether it's women or uh, men of color who are speaking, they all speak with one voice, which is the voice of the correlation committee. So yeah. it doesn't necessarily matter what the uh, the color or the gender is of the person speaking. It's all going to sound very similar. But I still want to note that and give kudos to the church where I think kudos are deserved. Okay. So he uh, goes on and he tells. And now uh, we're going to talk a little bit about a story that he tells. Because he comes from a really, really uh, bad spot in Africa where there's civil war and uh, a lot of unrest and a lot of soldiers marching around indiscriminately and killing people, uh, really bad situation. But in the context of this, at timestamp 6.42, mm-hmm. he tells about something that happened. It's a horrible thing. But if we can play that first part of the quote there. All right, let's do it. Walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. For almost a year, between 2016 and 2017, the people in the Kasaya region faced a terrible tragedy. It was a very dark period for the people because of a conflict between the traditional group of warriors and government forces. The violence spread from towns in Kasai, central province, to wider Kasai region. Many people fled their homes for safety and hide in the bush. They had no food or water or not anything, really. And among these were some members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the Kasai, in the Kananga area. Some members of the church were killed by the militia. There. So, uh, by the way, I've also got to comment that what a wonderful speaker. What a wonderful speaker this man is. And so uh, I just got to think the leadership of the church has got to be getting really, really tired of having the best speakers in general conference be the ones for whom English is not their native language. You got yeah, Elder Utor. That, yeah, and now you got <laughs> this that, guy. Yeah, the other thing is that you know these are people who can actually talk about real tragedies that are affecting people outside of the closed bubble of either Utah or the United States, and yeah, speak a- to you know the type of really intense life experiences that people really struggle with. Um, they have to bring someone who's born outside the Mormon belt in to be able to give voice to that experience. Yeah, it's quite uh, shocking to hear about this kind of thing from a member of the church who's talking in general conference. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing for that Utah bubble to be burst in this way. And he's totally upfront in the last line where he says some members of the church were killed by the militia. There was no special protection that was given to members of the church. This has all the uh, the sound of authenticity, what he's talking mm-hmm. about. But now he's going to go into a story about a particular member of the church who was protected by God and not killed in what is, I think, presented as being in a miraculous way. I have a few questions myself about whether this particular story is entirely accurate, but we'll get to those here in a second. Go ahead and listen. Brother Honore Mulumba of the Nganza Ward in Kananga and his family were some of the few people who remained hidden in the house, not knowing where to go, because all the streets were transformed into firing ranges. One day, 
some neighborhood militia men had noticed the presence of Brother Mulumba and his family, as one evening they went out to try to find some vegetables in the family garden to eat. A group of the militia men came to their home and then pulled them out and told them to choose to adhere to their militia practices or they will be killed. But Brother Mulumba courageously told them, I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My family and I have accepted Jesus Christ and have faith in him. We will remain faithful to our covenants and will accept to die. They told them, as you have chosen Jesus Christ, your bodies will be eaten by the dogs. And they promised to come back, but they never did come back. And the family stayed there for two months and never saw them again. But Mulumba and his family kept the torch of their faith alight. They remembered their covenants and were protected. So do you understand or see why it is that I have a question or two about the veracity of this story? Uh, well, I don't know. It sounds an awful lot like some of the early church history stories where the militiamen would drag people out. And we have stories of some of the prophets saying, you know, the, the gun was held to his face and they're like, are you a Mormon boy? And he looked him and square in the eye, steeled his jaw and said, I'm a Mormon, true blue through and through, light as the darkest day is the long. And then they're like, all right. And like that, those are like the pioneer stories of the brethren that I grew up hearing. And this sounds like a modern day retelling of it. So to the extent that it echoes that makes, makes me think, well, maybe there's some of that. But, you know, I don't know because there are tragedies happening around the world where religion can play a role in the in the way that people um you know are threatened towards other people okay well let me just tell you why i have a question maybe this could happen it just doesn't seem likely okay uh i guess most miracles don't seem likely but what i'm seeing here or hearing here is a group of militiamen finding this guy out there getting vegetables in his garden and saying to them you got to choose jesus christ or you got to choose the militia. And if you choose Jesus Christ over the militia, then we're going to kill you. That's the story, right? So this guy looks him in the face and says, well, I'm going to choose Jesus Christ over you and we will accept to die. And now the bad guys in the story say, okay, we're going to kill you, but we're not going to do it now. We're going to go away for a while <laughs> and we'll come back in a few days and then we're going to kill you. It's like, um, you ever see the old Batman series on TV back in the 60s? Yeah. And the villain is always, there's always an episode, uh, a scene in every episode where the villain, whether it's Riddler, the Joker, the Penguin, they have Batman and they usually have Robin and they've caught him and now they're going to kill him. And they set up some elaborate system that they're going to be killed by, you know, something diabolical. Yeah. And then they leave the room and they go off and they do something else which of course allows Batman the opportunity to escape in some clever way. And at some point you look at this, even as a kid, I'm looking at this and saying, geez, if you want Batman dead, just kill him. Don't sit there and give this huge thing, you know, put a bullet in his brain. Don't uh, leave the room and give him a chance to escape because you know, he's going to escape. He does it every time. And so that's the only question I have about this. If they want to kill him, kill him. Don't just say, okay, we're going to kill you, but, We'll come back in a few days. We're going to leave the room now <laughs> and give I, you a I chance don't know. to escape. The reason that almost sounds plausible to me, though, is like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Unforgiven. It's a Clint Eastwood film. Uh, Morgan Freeman's it. in it. Uh, is a phenomenal film. But one of the 
things about the film is that it disrupts the narrative of the Western and the the gunslinger and the just the cold-blooded killer because no small thing. And, um, and there's a young man who's a major character in that film that's kind of like you're, you're experiencing this where he's got this idolized version about the gunslinger that goes in and just kills everybody and he gets the gold or whatever and like that. But when it comes his time to do it, he just is confronted with the humanity and the what how it changes him. And he wants no part of it. So I mean, like, even people who are in these you know, that may be in militias and everything like that, they're still human. And and I think it's hard to look at somebody and not have some degree of empathy with them if you're not a sociopath and and, and have it be very difficult to take another life. And so I, I don't know, I, I don't see it as completely off the mark. I think it is plausible, but I, your point is taken about it seeming implausible. Yeah, and they're killing all these other people, apparently, including Latter-day well, Saints. And then well, unfortunately... Yes, unfortunately, what's the what's the problem with that? The problem we is all these include... other Latter Day Saints that got killed. I guess yeah. you know God wasn't in the neighborhood to protect them. Exactly. This is another thing where if we take everything that he said as as God's truth, it all happened exactly as he, as he said it. What we're doing. in that regard even though the story where they got killed would probably also be faith promoting you know a guy says who do you choose jesus christ or the militia and they see jesus christ and they kill him and his family you know that has its own form of faith promoting element to it but um but this is the one they went with I don't jonathan know. yeah you just shot an unarmed man <laughs> well he should have armed himself Yes. <laughs> Before he decided to go decorate in his saloon with my best friend. Oh, that's a great line from that movie. <laughs> yeah, I do know the movie. It is great. Okay, so let's see. I don't know if there's anything else about this talk. Then we get to Hope in Christ, which is still Saturday afternoon, but it's the last talk. We're not going to say a lot about it. It's President M. Russell Ballard. He is another president. This church has presidents out the yin-yang, doesn't it? He's the acting president. Not the real president. He's just the acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And he goes on and on about stuff that I do not think is very interesting. But at timestamp 6.21, this is where he is the second apostle to talk about single adults and how there's more unmarried adults in the LDS church now than there are married adults. And we need to do our part to start including the unmarried um, adults in church callings and activity. The Quorum of the Twelve Apostles have counseled together in a spirit of prayer and with yearning to understand how to help all who feel alone or feel they don't belong. We long to help all who feel this way. Let me mention in particular those who currently are single. Brothers and sisters, more than half of the adults in the church today are widowed, divorced, or have not yet married. Some wonder about their opportunities and place in God's plan and in the church. We should understand that eternal life is not simply a question of current marital status, but of discipleship. And being valiant. Uh, 
access to the grace of Christ through obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. There you go. So there he's adding his voice to Elder Gong from the morning session saying the same kind of thing. And here, once again, we're getting the mixed messages. I think that Elder Gong and Elder Ballard are kind of united, but they run into trouble with Elder Anderson and others who talk about how important it is to be having children within the marriage relationship and being married in the temple, of course, to do that. So there is this tension that's going on, but at least we have two apostles who are talking about how important it is to include the single adults and make it so that they feel less alone and more important. Yeah, I mean, when he specifically says the hope of all who are single is the same as for all members of the Lord's Church, I think that's really speaking to this sense of hopelessness that particularly sisters who have been raised with this idea that the most glorious way that they can fulfill God's purposes is to find a spouse and to bear children, and they are, um, for whatever reason, not able to cross that threshold, and they feel like all of their hope is gone. And for the brethren to address that sense um, directly and give them hope, I think is a great move for them to do that if they could just be consistent. Yeah, and I think he's sort of giving himself away when he says twice, not just your marital status isn't what's important, but it's your current medical, uh, current marital status. <laughs> we should understand that eternal life is not simply a question of current marital status. In yeah. other words, you still need to get married. So there's well, still that, that and even if even if you don't get married in this life, the gospel provides for you to be sealed to, you know, somebody in the next life. Oh, absolutely. The more the merrier. Mm -hmm. But as far as this goes, yeah. Uh, but but the whole structure of the church, and this is one of the the problems that the church has, especially when you've got now a majority unmarried adult membership is that the entire yeah. structure of the church and the, the entire plan of salvation that they put forward focuses and hinges upon marriage and having children. And if you're not doing that, you are perforce outside of the gospel plan. And so that's one of the things that they have to deal with. I think they're trying to, I give them credit for trying to deal with it. It seems like they're dealing with it. I mean, I hear these talks from time to time, right? Addressed to the single people and saying, you know, hang in there. You're good enough. But it really seems like they're really trying to incorporate them into the church. And I do note that it is at the same time as they are recognizing that now there are more of them than there are of us, i.e. more of the singles than there are of the marrieds. So we sort of have to. We're losing so many members. We've got to make use of the people that we have more so now than perhaps in the past. Yeah, agreed. All right, and there's another quote down lower, but let's just skip that because it so, sort of says the same thing. And it talks about, you know, using these people in the quorums and the wards and the branches. Um, oh, can we play it? Because there is something funny about it. Timestamp 14.18. Okay. 14.18. And when you're listening to the last sentence of this, Jonathan, remember the essay that talks about uh, the priesthood ban and how we need to disregard any old teachings about why it was that, that blacks couldn't have the priesthood or go to the okay. temple? All right, here we go. To you stake presidents, bishops, and quorum and sister leaders, I ask you to consider every member of your stake, ward, quorum, or organization as members who can contribute and serve in callings and participate in many ways. 
every member in our quorums, organizations, wards, and states has God-given gifts and talents that can help build up his kingdom now. Let us call upon our members who are single to serve, lift, and teach. Disregard old notions and ideas that have sometimes unintentionally contributed to their feelings of loneliness and that, that they do not belong or cannot serve. There it is. That last yeah. line. Disregard old notions and ideas that have sometimes unintentionally contributed to their feelings of loneliness and that they do not belong or cannot serve. Where did those notions and ideas come from, I suppose? It's the same dance that they do all the time where their teachings, their doctrine shape a culture that has detrimental effects to people on the margins. And then once they are confronted with that reality and have to deal with it, they lay the blame for our, those detrimental effects on the people in the culture, but not the leaders who actually shape the culture, and then try to tell the members to cut it out. Yeah, I would say it's the doctrine of the church that is marriage, man, woman, temple, children, resurrection, celestial kingdom. We all know the story, right? That's the doctrine of the church. That's the heart mm -hmm. of the church. But to the extent that that has now contributed to single members who don't fit into that uh, doctrine of celestial glory, um, now the, the, that doctrine is going to be called old notions and ideas. Yeah. When, when they need to, when they're talking to the single brethren. But as soon as they're talking to the wider people, then it's like, oh, it's the covenant path, the plan of happiness. What are the steps on those path in that pan? Well, it's marriage, uh, endowment, uh, sealing, uh, enduring to the end as a family, pumping out kids, getting them to go on missions so that they'll get sealed and married. You know, that's the path of happiness. But when you need to address the single people, then you say, don't, don't feel marginalized. You're, we include everybody. Yeah, I kind of feel like it's sort of giving a sop to the single people because they're not actually saying that they are okay uh, or sufficient being single, but they're going to pretend like they are while at the same time or over here talking about the same old, same old, which is you got to get married, you've got to have children, and you got to keep having children. You got to get revelations yeah. from God saying, have one more. Yeah. All right. We're done with Saturday afternoon. Woohoo. Okay. I'm well, so let's excited. move on. <laughs> to the next one. Okay, let, let me get rid of this, this for my screen. Out. That's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> okay, now let's go through this oh. really quickly. Are you ready? Okay, hold on a second. I'm checking. Okay, I can introduce it if you want. No, I'm just, uh, let's see, if I go next to Clint Quentin Cook, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, All Quentin right. Cook, not Crook, Jonathan. I, Let's show some Google respect. Google Cook and Hospital. All right. So here we go. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. So here we got uh, an actual priesthood session. So he's going to be addressing bishops. He's going to be talking about how great bishops are. He's going to tell the story of when he was a kid. And apparently everybody in his uh, family is a member of the church except for his dad. So he says his dad is wonderful in every way except for the fact he's not a Mormon. And then he tells a story about how a member of the bishopric in his ward when he was a boy sort of helped him out and substituted in for his dad. All right, I got it queued up. Are you ready? 0038. All right, here we go. Bishoprics, I have my father. Let me illustrate the importance of a bishopric with a personal experience. 
When I was a deacon, my family moved to a new home in a different ward. I was beginning junior high school, so I also attended a new school. There was a marvelous group of young men in the deacon's quorum. Most of their parents were active members. My mother was completely active. My father was exceptional in every way, but was not an active member. The second counselor in the bishopric, Brother Dean Iyer, was a devoted leader. When I was still adjusting to the new ward, a father-son event was announced for Bear Lake, about 40 miles away. I did not think I would attend without my father, but Brother Iyer issued a special invitation for me to go with him. He spoke highly and respectfully of my father and stressed the significance of my opportunity to be with the other members of the Deacon's Quorum. So I decided to go with Brother Iyer, and I had a wonderful experience. Brother Iyer was a marvelous example of Christ-like love in fulfilling the Bishop's Rick's responsibility to support parents in watching over and nurturing the youth. He gave me an excellent start in, the, in this new ward and was a mentor to And he says, and was a mentor to me. I, I didn't hear the last part, but it probably played. So... Let me just say about this, okay, I think it's a great story, I think it's wonderful, but it does bring up a certain memory to me, because when I had just joined the church, I'm 18, 1978, and I'm living at home, and my parents are both there, but I'm the only member of my family, the only member of the church in my family, I should say. Uh, my mom and my dad are there, and my dad, he is old enough to be my granddad. He was born in 1919, my mom 1922. I came along late in life. I was a wonderful surprise for them, I'm sure. But what happened was I become a member of the church and of course, a home teacher is assigned. And it was a very, very nice guy. I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, but uh, he was somewhat older and he would come with a priest, which is the way things were done back then. And we, he would come to the house and we'd go downstairs into the, the rec room and he'd give a lesson, we'd talk, and then they'd leave. And, you know, it was a home teaching visit. That's all it was. But once again, this guy was kind of older. And he might have been around the age of my dad. I'm not sure. But I didn't see anything wrong with this or any problem with it. And it seemed very, very uh, nice uh, that there was a home teacher. But it was only later that I found out that my dad, who did not express his opinions or his feelings very much, let me know that, he took personal umbrage at the idea that this guy was coming in to the house who was about his age and was mentoring me in a father-son kind of relationship. My dad felt as if he were being displaced as my father by the church. And that offended him. And he's not a guy who's prone to offense. And I can't remember, it must have been years and years later that he told me this. But I thought about it and I thought, wow, I guess I see where you're coming from. <laughs> Especially when you get to be a father yourself. And sometimes that uh, changes perspectives, doesn't it? Yeah. It does. <laughs> and so I, I think it's a wonderful story. I do hope that Brother Iyer, who's talking about, who took him on this father-son uh, retreat or camp out, asked Quentin's dad, to go with him first. I mean, I hope he was at least extended an invitation yeah. to go with him, to be given the opportunity. And maybe he was, and he turned it down, and Quentin Cook just doesn't mention it in his talk. I hope that happened, but if not, I could understand his dad feeling the same way my dad did. By the way, apparently his dad, well, I was just going to say, by the way, his dad, his dad apparently was a member, just an inactive member. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, just hearing you talk about your dad and the resentment, your dad was not active or your dad was not a member? What, what not, my dad was not a member. I'm okay. the only member of the church in my family. Okay. Because 
When I was a teenager, we had a seminary teacher, Sister Shaw, who was really active, really engaging, and um, I was in an unconventional situation because I had gotten into this magnet school, and so I was driving early. I had to go to a different thing, and so she was helping me with the home studies seminary thing, and she made some incentives. If you do this, 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 we'll take you out to, you know, go eat at Red Lobster. Like, that was like the, you know, the Ritz to eat at Red Lobster. So, you know, I did that, and her son was a good friend of mine, and so I would go and hang out there all the time. And then I just realized later that this thing that my mom would sometimes do when she was mad at me would be like, uh, you know, sure, just go off to Sister Shaw. I guess she's your mom now. You know, you, you seem to always you seem to always want to listen to Sister Shaw, not me. And it's one of those things where I could see that there maybe was a similar degree of resentment just from the role that Sister Shaw was playing in my life. But, I, you know, I, I think it would be easy to just say, well, you know, the church is just getting in the way between parents and their children. I think to some extent there is a teenager dynamic about that where as you are becoming a teenager and you're discovering not only the faults and frailties of your parents with great uh, interest, but you're also looking for mentorship other than your parents. And that's where a significant teacher either in school or in seminary can enter your life. And, uh, and that's just a dynamic that we probably all have to deal with as we become parents and our own children go through the same thing. Yeah. This, this, by the way, was the same home teacher who seemed to take a particular delight in filling my ears with the deep doctrines of the church, Jonathan. For instance, it was from him that, that I first learned that uh, it was God and Mary who had sex in order to have baby Jesus. That seems like an awkward thing to tell. How old were you? 18. Oh, okay. No, I guess that's fine. My mind was so blown. <laughs> I remember watching him drive off down the driveway and saying goodbye and thinking, okay, I am like traumatized right now. I can't even <laughs> deal with this. But apparently I did. Eventually. All right. Well, is he the one that tipped you over into the threshold of, wait, there are deeper secrets that I must now possess and study. And, and that just sends you into a lifetime of intense research that brings you to where you are now. He might have been because I sure took it as gospel that he was telling me. I mean, he's the home teacher, right? He's, old, he's as old as my dad. So obviously it's going to be true. Well, we all have him to thank then. Oh, then, unfortunately, Brother Iyer, who was a very nice guy to Elder Cook, mm. ends up, uh, there's this last paragraph, which is sort of the epitaph for Brother Iyer. Let's listen. A few months before I left for a mission in 1960, Brother Iyer passed away from cancer at age 39. He left a wife and their five children, all younger than age 16. His oldest sons, Richard and Chris Iyer, have assured me that in the absence of their father, Bishop Ricks supported and watched out for them and their younger brothers and sister with Christ-like love for which I am grateful. So there it is. There it is. And you know, I think that's tragic. It's horrible. But I know, I know that Brother I received multiple priesthood blessings to be healed from the cancer. And when I say I know that, I know that because he's a Mormon and that's what Mormons do. Yeah. Um, apparently they didn't work. He passed away at yeah. age 39 and it looks like we have another enrollee in the LDS General Conference, Death March. Yeah. You know, as he's talking there about how the children of that leader who died were taken care of by the ward and to an extent even his own story, it reminds me that there is a significant social function that a close-knit community like the church can provide. 
specifically for people who do have uh, gaps in you know their home life um who have a need for you know assistance from outside there because i think those things exist in the world where whether it's a single mom or a single father who's trying to make ends meet and would just benefit greatly and the children would benefit greatly from the support that a network of uh, people who have similar values can provide for them so even when you leave the church, like in the ex-Mormon community, there's like a community of ex-Mormon people and you'll find them start together to come together to fulfill those same needs. Um, you know, as they start meeting in their Facebook groups or whatever, you know, people will sometimes say, hey, I've got this particular need or something and people will step up to help out. And that's, I think that's a very human need and a very uh, empathetic response and desire to help out other people that it just gets expressed in the religious mode in the church. But it's, it's there even if you leave the church. Um, and sometimes I think the churches may even be more effective at making more of those resources available. It's, I don't know, it's just one of those things that you still have to struggle with as you lose the community of the church. Is not only are you losing the indoctrination and the harmful messaging, but you're also losing that network of, of people with shared values who are, you know, eager to step up and help. Yes. Can I just add something? I think that I think you're very charitable and you make some great, great comments. Um, I'm just going to suggest that based on my personal experience, the reason that you lose that network as you sort of step away mm -hmm. from the church is because that network depends upon you being a member of the church and not upon any kind of genuine friendship. No, it's true. Just saying. Sorry, Mormons. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you can do better. And some of you do, but not most of you. So there's room for improvement there. Oh, now we get to this part in his talk. This is very interesting to me because number one, it reflects the ongoing problems they have keeping young people in the church. And the bishop is supposed to be over the youth of the church. I mean, he's the president of the, uh, the priest quorum, right? But that's been mm -hmm. ex extended to the youth. We know that the bishop has all these other responsibilities as well. But what... I have seen as a progression of getting rid of those other responsibilities that the bishop has so that he can focus, focus, focus just on the youth because yeah. they need this help. Obviously, they need this help. And so that's a reflection of how much trouble they're having with youth leaving. But also what's interesting here is that we know the bishops counsel with members of the church, right? They come in mm -hmm. with this problem or that problem or whatever, and his calendar is booked with these counseling sessions. He also does youth interviews too, but with adults, he does a whole ton of stuff. This now changes that. And what Elder Cook is gonna say is, look, we don't really want bishops counseling with adults. I mean, if it's a repentance thing, yeah, okay. But if it's not repentance, then give that to other people. And in fact, you can give it to uh, Relief Society, Presidency, you can give it to Elders Quorum, presidency and you can even give it to the members who are not in the the presidencies this is amazing to me in other words assigning members of the ward to counsel with the adults who would normally would be coming into the bishop to take up his time to talk with him about their problems and receive his counsel do you have that hmm. uh, that uh tape that uh, timestamp yeah, 10.32 yep let's listen In order to spend more time with youth, 
wherever they are, including at school events or activities, bishoprics have to have been counseled to delegate appropriate meetings and counseling time with adults. While bishops can counsel on acute and urgent matters, we recommend that delegation of ongoing counseling with chronic, less urgent matters that do not involve judgments as to worthiness be assigned to members of the Elders Quorum or Relief Society, usually presidencies or ministering brothers and sisters. The Spirit will guide the leaders to select the right members to undertake this counseling. Those who receive this delegated counseling assignment are entitled to revelation. They, of course, must always maintain strict confidentiality. Thoughtful leaders have always sacrificed for the rising generation. This is where the bishopric members spend the majority of their church service time. So that's what they've got to do, have the members of the bishopric spend the majority of their church service time to sacrifice for the rising generation. Your thoughts? Uh, I don't know. You know, I, in my time working with Protect LDS Children, I spent some time digging through a lot of documents, um, reviewing various different institutions and some court stuff. And there's something very significant about being a clergy member, an official clergy member, and it carries confidentiality privileges that extend into the courtroom. And there's a blurring of this line between clergy and members that is alluded to in this talk. And he even acknowledges that there's a confidentiality issue you have to deal with here. And the thing is, like, when you go to any other church where they have a professional clergy, part of that professional education includes understanding the scope of responsibilities, the nature of confidentiality. And, and, and it's a very formal thing because it means something when you go into court. And here we have now, we're taking these lay leaders in the Mormon church who themselves are professionals, they have some other thing, and we're throwing them into that mix because court cases happen where suddenly it becomes very important what is confidential, what is not, and what should, what a person has legally obligated to disclose and what they're not. And when the, the Mormon church is now further diluting what it means to actually be an officer of the church, I don't know, it just strikes me as a, a potential problem in the future. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And actually, by doing this, they may end up losing some of the uh, priest penitent privilege mm -hmm. that you're talking about that they have prior to this maybe relied on to some degree. Yeah. In other words, it's really clear if you're meeting with the bishop and you're talking about stuff, it's confidential. But if you're meeting with somebody other than the bishop who's just being delegated this responsibility, then there's a huge question in my mind as whether anything said there would remain confidential. In spite of in spite of them saying, yeah, keep keep everything confidential. Right. I think the bishopric has a tough enough time keeping things confidential. And it's probably not going to get any better when you're uh, letting the members counsel with other adults. But to your point about what they're doing now is they're taking a significant chunk of bishop's obligations, having to meet regularly with, you know, the sister who is in that mindset where she can't make any decision without consulting priesthood leadership. Why do you the say sister? Who, that sounds very sexist this, to me, Jonathan. It's probably sexist, but in my life, that's been the, um, the overwhelming majority of people in that paradigm. It's just what it is. Um, <laughs> I know. And it's probably even not a married sister, maybe widowed who is yeah, looking I mean, for the priesthood authority that she doesn't have in her home, so she goes to the bishop. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you teach reliance on priesthood authority for decisions in your life, 
like even within the past talk with brother Anderson, where he's like, okay, it's okay for you make the decision about to have more children. That's a personal decision between you and your spouse. What he's doing is he's following in a pattern of you have to be given permission to make decisions for yourself. And if it's not in a talk where they've said, okay, for this, you have permission to make decisions for yourself. Then now in everything else, you need to rely on the priesthood leadership, whether it's the, you know, what trickles down through the culture or directly talking to your bishop, even to the extent like in the past, it's been like, well, you could get a vasectomy if you're a man, but you should consult with priesthood leadership. It's just this paradigm that exists in the church where the default is reliance on the brethren and their authority, except when they've given you permission to make decisions for yourself. And that just kind of happens. Um in the church, I think. Right. And I think what they say over and over is you, we're giving you permission to do what it is we tell you to do. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, the next talk is you can gather Israel. Now this, I believe is the second man of color who's uh, speaking. He's the first counselor in the young men general presidency. I don't know if you have his picture up there. I will tell you that I don't, I didn't really find anything of note to speak about in his talk. I thought it was an okay talk, but there wasn't anything other than the, oh. the standard LDS. What is it? No, I thought that this talk actually had some very important stuff. Are you really? Well, tell me about it. I did. It. Talk okay. to me. Well, okay. So let's, this is uh, Ahmad Corbett, who is speaking um, about something that I think is, is really important to the church and how it interfaces with individuals' lives. And that is how the church weaves a narrative that then directly colors and shapes your identity. And then that is how you navigate the world. So what I mean by this is, let's take a look at Scientology. Okay, Scientology has a narrative and the narrative involves Xenu and Thetans and the Thetans invade your body and you have to spend your life doing these auditing sessions so that you can understand and extract these Thetans. That's a story. And that story shapes your identity because when you are a Scientologist and you are living in the world, you don't see yourself as just a human on the earth. You see yourself as this being infested with Thetans who has a potential in multiple recurring lives to climb the ladder to, of what do they call it? The ladder of bridge to freedom or whatever. But that story shapes who you think you are, the life you think you're living, and how then you judge yourself, how you judge the world. And it's all bound up by this ideology that frames the narrative. And the ideology is this system of ideas and belief that are built by little segments of dogma, little assertions made originally by L. Ron Hubbard that are not provable or disprovable. They're just, this is how it is. And it's dogma. You can't question it. So the dogma shapes the ideology. The ideology gives rise to a narrative, a story, and the story tells you what your identity is in that story. So now, in order for you to break out of that system, you have to break through all those different layers that tell you who you are. Now, Ahmad Corbett in this talk talks about his family joining the church, and let's let's talk about that story because he joined the church at a time where if you were black and you joined the church, there was a story you were going to be told. And it was an important story because it shaped how you understood why you were black. Now, he joined the church in 1980, just a year after the priesthood ban was lifted. But anyone at that time is going to have questions and say, why were blacks not allowed to have the priesthood before 1978? 
and an answer was given to you. This is the same answer that was given all the way up into 2012 when Professor Botts from BYU was asked that same question by a news reporter, and he said, well, I'll tell you about the story of the premortal existence and the spirits who weren't as valiant but still wanted to gain a body on the earth. So that story we know existed in Mormonism up until 2012 when suddenly the church realized that it was really bad optics for it to be uh, continuing to be out there without refutation. And so he makes that story central to his own life in deciding what to do now that as a 17-year-old young man, he joins the church. And I think it's significant that he is the one who's invoking the story because he's black. And historically, this story meant a lot to people who were black because it made sense of the history of the church in regards to the priesthood ban. And so it was almost a special story, even if it was fraught with all of these problems, because it it made sense of the gospel. It, it gave clarity to it. Even if if now you can't, you know, from our perspective, we see this as a terrible story, a way to demean people. Um, when I first started getting into these things, I joined some groups specifically for people dealing with the issue of race, active members who themselves were black, were, went to Genesis. And that story continued to carry significance to people even into the modern era. Um, so let's see if uh let's see if i have the timestamp i wanted to go to let's start at 43 and we'll hear a little bit about his story okay so 43 miraculously both parents and all 10 children were baptized in the prophet's words they let god prevail in their lives i should say our lives i was the third child i was 17 years old when i decided to make a permanent covenant to follow jesus christ but guess what else i decided i would not serve a full-time mission that was too much and this could not be expected of me, right? I was a brand new church member. I had no money. Besides, although I had just graduated from the toughest high school in nearby West Philadelphia and faced down some dangerous challenges, I was secretly terrified of leaving home for two whole years. Okay, he's going to, you know, he's, he's set the backdrop a little bit for himself. Um, he's a convert. His whole family was a convert. He converted as a teenager. And he struggled with a decision to actually serve a mission. He did not want to do that. He, you know, shows a little bit of vulnerability in saying he was kind of scared of it, which I think is actually a, a good way for him to connect with his audience. But now he's going to do what President Nelson has done a number of times, and that is he's leveraged this concept of the identity to get people to keep themselves within the world of the church. They have to stay there because the church is the thing that provides them our identity, and it's shaped by the stories that the church tells. So let's keep going. But I had just learned that I and all of humanity had lived with our Heavenly Father as his spirit sons and daughters before our birth. Others needed to know, as I knew, that he longed for all his children to enjoy eternal life with him. So before anyone was on earth, he presented all with his perfect plan of salvation and happiness with Jesus Christ as our Savior. Tragically, Satan opposed God's plan. According to the book of Revelation, there was war in heaven. Satan cunningly deceived a third part of Heavenly Father's spirit children into letting him prevail instead of God. But not you. The Apostle John saw that you overcame Satan, quote, by the word of your testimony, close quote. Knowing my true identity, helped by my patriarchal blessing, gave me the courage and faith to accept President Spencer W. Kimball's invitation to gather Israel. It will be the same for you, dear friends. Knowing you overcame Satan by the word of your testimony before will help you love, share, and invite now and always. To invite others to come and see, come and help, and come and belong as that same war for the souls of God's children rages on. So here we've got 
a story that historically has been an embarrassment for the church on the issue of race. And that is that this pre-mortal war and who chose God's side and who perhaps was not as valiant in it. And even though it answers something and the church is kind of, it's it's a special little gem, uh, metaphysically speaking, for the understanding of the pre-mortal existence, it still is kind of an embarrassment because of how it was used on the subject of race. So now you have someone who is black, who's talking about it, who's shining it up, giving it a good frame and saying, now we can continue to use this story. This is a good story, but it's important. I think, I don't even think the brethren had to tell him to do it. I think he needed, if you're going to stay in the church and you're, and you're of, and you're black, then you, you kind of have to wrestle with this story, knowing how it was used in the past. And he does an admirable job of cleaning it up here and saying, this is still something that is central to my own personal faith. And, um, but it's, treading dangerously close to where it draw drew the lines that caused members to give them permission to treat other people as less than it's just that as members of the church we now we don't draw that line as you're white and you're a member of the church and then everybody else is less than we draw the line at you're a member of the church so you were born you were one of those great and noble spirits because as soon as you invoke great and noble then it implies that there were spirits in the premortal existence who were less than noble who were not in those great and noble councils, and that's the rest of the world. So you've already got that tribalistic, ethnocentric line that you've drawn in the sand. And he continues to invoke it a little bit later. Um, we don't have to go into all of the different things, but if you listen to his talk, he goes pretty deep and he even invokes the the noble spirits and everything. Um, for me, I just thought it was significant that this was the central message of his story, which, which is identity. And I've got a whole series on this concept of dogma and ideology, narrative and identity, and how it really keeps you within this protective shell of whatever ideological system that you're in. And that story gave him purpose. It made sense of everything. And he, you continue to hold on to it if you're a member of the church. And to the extent that the story gives you messages about how good you are, how great you are, how noble you are because of the character of your spirit in the past that allowed you to be born into the church, then it gives you a lot of hope in your life today because it elevates your concept of who you are and it gives you something to aspire to. Now you've got to aspire to that narrative. It's just that the church poisons it by basically saying all of your aspirations, all of the things that you could want to do with your life can only justly and rightly be expressed in following within the guidelines that we give you as the church. Pay, pray, and obey. And uh, and so he continues that. Anyway, that's that's my spiel on this. Um, yeah, I think you're right it, about uh, that... that uh, the idea of the noble and great ones, some better than others still in the pre-mortal existence among those who still come to this earth, right? In that two thirds yeah. group, there's still some that are better and some that are not so good. And I, we may have heard it even earlier, uh, talking about uh, those special spirits from the pre-mortal existence that are designed to come down to be born into faithful LDS families, right? So we've got that there. Yeah. One of the things you said about identity that really struck me is I've been becoming more and more aware over the past few years about how it was that the LDS church through the Book of Mormon gave to the Native Americans, they superimposed an identity upon them, which mm -hmm. is that they're actually Hebrews who had right. run over from you know Israel, 600 BC. We all know the story, but that that had been superimposed upon them. And it was being superimposed by other people at the same time that the Book of Mormon came out. But Book of Mormon did that. Mormonism did that. And it's hard to 
uh, tell a group of people what your identity is without taking away their original identity. I know that from the point of view of the, the members of the church, they're actually doing them a favor, right? They're telling them, this is your real identity and isn't it cool? But at the same time, they're actually taking away their original identity. And it struck me as you were talking about that, that that sort of is similar to what the church does to each of us individually. They want to tell us who we are, tell us what our identity is. And isn't that cool? And yeah, it's cool. But at the same time, are they not taking away our original identity, our individual identity, whatever that may be? And that's the sacrifice that has to be made in order to tell us who we really are. Yeah. And it's so fascinating that, you know, these identities are shaped by stories. And, it you know, when you talk about the Native Americans, what is the thing that stripped them of their legitimate identity based on their actual history and gave them this new fake identity? It's the story of the Book of, a of Mormon and everything that flows from it. And even, you know, when the president of the church gets up and he, he talks about being a true millennial, that was like the first talk that President Nelson gave to the youth is your identity as a true millennial. So it just, it, it casts, it weaves a story about, because when he invokes a millennial, he's talking about the millennial reign of Christ and it invokes all of these different dispensations. There's a whole story behind it about who you are and what the future holds that shapes then what choices you have to make within that story. And you can go to anyone, you go to Jehovah's Witnesses and just say, what is the story that tells you who you are in the world? And they'll talk about Jehovah God and the paradise that awaits and the things that you have to do now so that you can have that last chapter in your story. Um, but it just reframes the decisions and choices that you make. I mean, it's so central to your world. If you look back on the three different movies of uh, The Matrix, you know, in, in every different step, Neo is learning a different narrative about what his identity is. It goes from, you know, him being just the schlub who works in the office, who hacks in the evening to being the one, the chosen one. And then later he learns, spoilers, that he's programmatically inserted into the system. There's always going to be a chosen one because you have to be involved in the reset of the system. And at every point of the way, it just totally reshapes his world and what his purpose and role in the world is. And that's one of the things that when you when you leave the church and you lose a story that was given to you, then there's a whole different type of existential crisis that you have because you are now left to create your own story and to determine what your own story is. And that's where there's a lot of different people who are eager to jump in and give you a narrative. And what is your narrative now? Is your narrative now, oh, well, you've got to be an evangelical Christian because this is the new story you have to take. And some people fall into that paradigm and then they realize that they're simply adopting a narrative that somebody else is giving them. Other people will choose that paradigm and, and then still hold enough of their own autonomy that they choose for themselves what that means. Even if somebody else tells them, no, this is what that means. They, they say, no, 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 I'm going to choose for myself what it means to be a Christian. And then you have other people who adopt a secular identity and narrative. You've got to now fight. You've got to be an activist for social justice. And that's the only framework of goodness and badness in this world. And so you've got to now be an ally. You know, those stories, those narratives, those identities then shape what choices you can make, how you can feel yourself to be an agent of good in the world. And to the extent that you maintain control over what that means, then that can be good. But as soon as you start to see that suddenly the choices that you make are now handed to you by what somebody else says it's acceptable for someone in your role to, to do, just realize that you've now subsumed some other narrative, 
you've lost control over the narrative of your own life because it is at the leash of somebody else. And it's a difficult thing to navigate when you've only had one narrative. You've never had to go through the process of learning what it is to rest on your own story and to make your own story. It's it's a difficult thing. Yeah, it's one thing to read uh, a book by somebody else that's supposed to describe you. It's a much more difficult thing to write your own story. Um, there was a person who made a comment on my Facebook page the other day, and he talked about uh, how uh, life is like a road. It was actually a little uh, couplet and I can't remember it rhymes, you know, but it says uh, life is a road. You got to be careful because when you choose a road and you start on a road, you're also choosing the end of the road and where that road leads. So you, if you don't like where that road is leading, then you should get off the start of the road as fast as you possibly can. Right. And I haven't responded to that particular thing and I may not, but I'll do it here because the thought that crossed my mind when I read that is, no, you're misunderstanding. You are not walking a road. You are the road. That's supposed to be profound. It seemed profound when it occurred to me, but you are the road that you walk, all right? There isn't an end. Just because you're at the beginning of a road doesn't mean there's a predestined end to that road. You are the road that you're walking. Yeah. So, are we ready to go on? I think so. Okay. Um, this is Our Time by Gifford Nielsen. Oh, yeah. I'd never heard of this guy before. But uh, apparently, uh, the Gifford name should have clued me in that apparently he was a former NFL quarterback, even though it looks like that's his middle name. Um, so <laughs> this is Our Time. And he starts off by talking about how he was an NFL quarterback. And his first game back in 1978, when I'm graduating from high school, he's starting his first game in the NFL. He doesn't say what team it was for, and I didn't bother looking it up, but I'm guessing it was for one of the normal teams back then. And, uh, but of course, you know, this is great. This is one of the things that the church likes to do, and it does have a lot of impact on the youth of the church, the boys of the church. They like the, you know, the, the, the athletes. Um, the guys in the military, the the guys who are doing the things that uh, young boys would like to do when they get older. And so it carries this additional credibility. Uh, I think it's one of the reasons Paul H. Dunn was so popular because he played Major League Baseball and he was in the military and had a lot of wonderful experiences. Um, but there is a story. There is a story here that is told at timestamp 3.33. And this is a miracle story. Okay, they keep swinging at these miracle stories. Ultimately, we're going to get to President Eyring, who's going to knock it out of the park. But this one is another attempt at a miracle story when he's going to tell us about a time when he was just called as a 70, apparently. And there's some kid who's getting ready to go on a mission. He gets in a bad accident. He's in the hospital. He gets a call from the office of the first presidency that he needs to go to the hospital on behalf of the first presidency. So they're busy, they can't make it, you know, they got other things to do, but hey, let's tap this guy and he'll go there for us to take care of business. All right, uh, I got it queued up. And I think you're right, the brethren-like paradigms where there's somebody who is in authority and somebody who has to obey that authority. So whether it's the military or sports, in the military it's like, tell me where you need me to go, general. And in sports it's like, where do you need me to go, coach? It's like, let's let's model that so that you can have it. So I can see this guy, you know, the brethren are like, you need to go with this. He's all right, I'll go. Here we go. Hold up. Or and, lay on the ground for hours without moving. Yes, exactly. 
from prior. Courage. When I was a new and inexperienced 70, I received an urgent phone call from the office of the First Presidency asking if I would represent the prophet in visiting a young man in the hospital immediately. The young man's name was Zach. He was preparing to be a missionary, but had been in an accident and suffered a serious head injury. As I drove to the hospital, my mind raced. An errand for the prophet? Are you kidding? What am I going to face? How will I help this young man? Do I have enough faith? Fervent prayer and the knowledge that I possess the authority of the holy priesthood became my anchors. When I arrived, Zach was lying in a hospital bed and orderly stood ready to whisk him to the operating room so doctors could relieve the pressure on his brain. I looked at his tearful mom and a fearful young friend standing nearby, and I knew clearly that Zach needed a priesthood blessing. You stop his there. friend had recently. Okay, and maybe even go back a little bit when you start playing. This is the first part where I start going, what? Okay, now obviously this guy, Zach, who's had this horrible accident uh, and not making fun of him at all, obviously his family's connected, okay? Because when I was preparing for a mission, if I got in a bad accident, uh, the first presidency is not going to be contacted. They're not going to know anything about it. They're certainly not going to be sending a 70 to the hospital. But he says, I saw this. I knew clearly that Zach needed a priesthood blessing. Well, come on. That's why you were going there in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're, you already know what's happened. This guy's had an accident, suffered a serious head injury. They have you go as a 70. You know you're going there to give a blessing. OK, so but he sounds like I knew clearly that Zach needed a priesthood blessing. Well, that doesn't mean he didn't know he was going to do it beforehand, but now he knows it clearly. But he also had said that he sees uh, his tearful mom and a fearful young friend standing nearby. So if you can go a bit and just play that next sentence of his story. that Zach needed a priesthood blessing. His friend had recently received the Melchizedek priesthood, so I asked him to help me. Okay, hang on a I second. I felt the power of the priesthood as we gave Zach a blessing. <laughs> then you he was there? away for the surgery. No, no, no. Did you get it? Could you hear no. it? No. Yeah, yeah, I did, but I just wanted that next line. And by the way, you're playing this at a fast speed, aren't you, for all these speakers? Uh, they were so slow. Thank you. <laughs> I, I just got to tell you, enough. thank you. But if people are listening to this going, wow, General Conference has really perked up since the last time I watched. It's because of you. And yeah, then you're no, playing this. That up. <laughs> What it, all of these speakers are sped up. I could tell. Yeah. <laughs> it actually sounds like, you know, they've got some energy. Um, yeah. <laughs> but he says his friend, the one that he sees standing in the hospital room, right? His friend mm -hmm. had recently received the Melchizedek priesthood, so I asked him to help me. And I'm going, okay, the first duh was, why did you think you needed to run over there if not to give a priesthood blessing? And the second duh is, why did you run over there to give a priesthood blessing without another Melchizedek priesthood holder going with you? So it just happens to have this other guy over there. Thankfully, he's just received the Melchizedek priesthood. So we're in business. We can give him a priesthood blessing. It, it could only be better if he said, oh, and by the way, do you have any oil? <laughs> <laughs> do you have any oil? Well, there's a nurse there and said, well, we have some oil, you know, over here. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, but, but no. So they're going to give him a blessing. And if you could just play these next couple lines. Okay. Uh, here we go. And you can go back a little bit. Yeah, I did. His friend had recently received the Melchizedek priesthood, so I asked him to help me. I felt the power of the priesthood as we humbly gave Zach a blessing. Then he was hurried away for the surgery, and a peaceful feeling confirmed that the Savior would handle things according to his wisdom. There. The medical staff performed one last x-ray right. before making the initial incision. Okay. His wisdom. Right. So, in other words, he gave the standard non-blessing blessing, right? Okay, we bless you that you'll be healed if God wants you to be healed. And we bless yep. you that you'll be made well if God wants you to be made well. And we bless you that the doctors will be able to do a good job in their surgery. 
if God wants him to do a good job in the yeah. surgery. <laughs> you know, it's the whole thing where it's all the ways of the default. We're blessing you, but we're leaving it to God so that we've got uh, a fail safe it, just in case it doesn't work. Which generally well, as priesthood it holders, as priesthood holders, were always good gardeners because we always shaped a very good hedge in those blessings. <laughs> and, and you know, honestly, I've talked about this before, but it's there's pressure here. Oh yeah, it's a stressful situation. We've been taught we've got the priesthood; we can heal people. And I think he's actually expressing some of that uh, desperation as he's racing over there. You know, my gosh. Here I'm on an errand from the first presidency. I'm going to have to give this kid a blessing. Uh, I hope it works. You know, yeah. it really needs to work. But what if it doesn't? And so that gets manifested in the wording that gets uh, chosen and used and replicated. Not I bless you that you will be healed. But, you know, if it be if God's God will. It. You're always yes. putting that clause at the end, right? If and it be God's will. It's softer than saying, you know, you'll get blessed according to your faith. As long as you didn't uh, play with your deadly factory in the last two weeks, then, you know, if you don't get healed and there was some factory maintenance going on, then chances are <laughs> you deserve it. <laughs> no, the according to your faith one is good, too, because then it puts it right back on the guy yeah, getting the blessing. Yeah, it right back on them. That, that was, but, I was always good when I heard that talk by, uh, I think it was Oaks, that was just like, you know, a priesthood blessing is more dependent on the faith of the one receiving it than the uh, righteousness of the man giving the blessing. I was like, Yes! That's right. That's absolutely right. That's what every worthy priesthood holder wants to hear. Yes, exactly. Yes, but that's but this is the tell. What he says, he was hurried away for the surgery, and a peaceful feeling confirmed that the Savior would handle things according mm. to his wisdom, right? Not that he would heal yes. him, but according to his wisdom. And now can you play the next two lines? Sorry All to right. break this up, but there's it's just no, a, okay. a delight to do this would handle things according to his wisdom. The medical staff performed one last x-ray before making the initial incision. They discovered to their astonishment that no operation would be needed. There. Oh my gosh, we do have a miracle. It, We've got a miracle. miracle. This guy had had a bad car accident. Uh, apparently he's got swelling in the brain and they have to open up the brain Inca style or open up the skull in order to relieve the pressure but they perform one last x-ray before making the initial incision and they discovered to their astonishment that no operation would be needed. Well, thank goodness, this is a true miracle. The priesthood did heal this young man completely, fully, totally, and he was able to walk and talk and get up from the hospital bed immediately and go on his mission. Oh, wait so, a second, wait a second, that's not true. Oh, there, there's more to there, the story, there's more to the yeah. story. Oh, okay. So if you go back and play the very next line, and that's that's when it gave it away and I actually had to laugh out loud. Okay. After much therapy, Zach learned to walk and talk again. He <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. This is horrible of me. But if you play it all in a row, it says, the medical staff performed one last x-ray before making the initial incision. They discovered to their astonishment that no operation would be needed. After much therapy, Zach learned to walk and talk again. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So maybe the blessing was good okay. enough to for the head, but not enough for the, the legs and the, the vocal cords. I don't know. Yeah. Well, the other side to this is, so I happen to be a radiologist. Like, I read x-rays. I interact with, uh, you know, the a traumatic head bleed requiring a, a procedure to relieve pressure is not all that uncommon if you work in a division that deals with a lot of trauma, which I've done before. 
So there's no x-ray that you're going to get that is going to tell you that there's no longer compression on the brain requiring evacuation oh, of a hematoma. Good so there can be a CT scan, but if yes. you've done a CT scan already and it's shown significant mass effect, like that blood has to go somewhere and to have another CT scan say, oh, well, we don't need to do the surgery is going to be pretty unusual. But an x-ray is, is definitely not going to do that because you can't even see the things that require the relief on an x-ray. Um, so I don't know, there's something a little bit fishy about this story from that perspective, but a lot of the times you'll have lay people that come in, they think they understand what it is that's driving the decisions, but they don't. And so in that gap of knowledge, if you can create a story that then allows it to be faith promoting and a miracle, then who's going to refute you? Nobody. Wow, that is really interesting. Good point. I actually scrolled back to look and see if I had understood it correctly. And yeah, he's talking about he needed surgery to relieve the pressure on his brain. Yeah, that's what he says. Yep. So that's really interesting. Good points there. I'm learning stuff today. <laughs> Did you? Do we need to go and continue? Uh, he learned to walk and talk again. And to so talk again. To yeah. talk again. Uh, walking again and talking again. This guy's brain really got a wallop. If he can't talk and has to be able to learn to talk again. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Wow. So I just wish the blessing had been good enough to make it so he could walk without the much therapy that's yeah. mentioned here. But I'm glad it helped relieve the, the pressure on the brain. That is something, and we shouldn't let that go unnoticed. And he does finally serve a successful mission and is now raising a beautiful family. Oh, please play the rest, because after this okay. sort of marginal partial miracle through the priest of blessing, he's going to talk about what usually happens. Okay. The successful mission and is now raising a beautiful family. Of course, that is not always the outcome. I've given other priesthood blessings with equal faith, and the Lord did not grant complete healing in this life. We trust His purposes and leave the results to Him. We can't always choose the outcome of our actions, but we can choose to be ready to act. There you go. The Great Hedge. So this is uh, like his big, yeah, the Great Hedge. This is, a, this is his big miracle story uh, about the, the pressure on the brain, but he still needs a lot of therapy to learn to walk and talk again. But, you know... Not all of my priesthood blessings turn out so well. <laughs> Go ahead, you talk expected. about your hedge. <laughs> no, yeah, but that's to be expected because, you know, God's going to do whatever he does, regardless of whether or not we're there to put hands on anyone. Uh, I just love... they look like Mr. Potato Head. They, they, he got some ugly kids. <laughs> we never see that. <laughs> okay, well, that's all I had to say for this gentleman. Oh, bless in his name. Now we've got President Henry B. Eyring. This right, is so great because now we're, the next one. now we're to the second half of the general priesthood well, session we where we hear from the three members of the first presidency in ascending order from second counselor to first counselor to the president, and we start with the second counselor, President Eyring. And wait, 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 hold on, hold on a second. Is that a pattern? Like, does that happen in every priesthood session? Yes. You just blew my mind. Have you not noticed this no before? Idea. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just thought it was just like random people, and then you go for the big clothes at the end, the prophet at the end. But <laughs> yeah, the first the first three are random people, but for the second hour, now we're uh, this is the batting order. I had no idea. 
All right. Well, I'm learning stuff today. All right. Well, good, because I learned about the x-ray thing, and x-rays don't show (laughs) pressure on the brain. Yeah. Timestamp 226 is your first one. Oh, actually, what's your setup for this? I want to to skip this. Oh, okay. You notice I said, but not that important can skip. This is not that important. Uh, It's just mildly important, mildly interesting. If we had five hours, if we were doing a Mormon Stories interview today, we'd definitely go over that. But, um, and we'll skip the timestamp 350 because we don't need that but we want to get Am to I, this is he crying at any point in this am i missing the 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 waterworks because oh I'm yeah missing his waterworks okay yeah yeah you'll be missing a lot of crying as we skip down to 7.40 all right i got it because here here's the thing all and if you could maybe go back to 7 30 just mm. so we can catch the lead into this because okay. the incredible thing is he's going to tell the story about this miracle where he healed somebody by the power of the priesthood and it was this little girl was this another auto accident? I can't remember. But a little girl who's in the hospital yeah. needs a priesthood blessing. And um, it works. It works. Um, and the first time I heard about this, I hadn't listened to the talk yet. And I'm looking at Reddit. And Reddit's saying, uh, I guess uh, President Eyring must have been listening to Radio Free Mormon. And he figures he better tell a story where he actually heals somebody instead of killing him by the priesthood. <laughs> yeah. And... I thought that was funny. I, I don't think it's true, but I think it's funny that he would listen to me and change it. But uh, he tells his story, and it's so strange the way he tells the story, especially when we know his background of, you know, he can't bless somebody, but that they die five minutes later. And he tells his story talking about ministering by the priesthood. By the way, I think his overarching message is good, that it's not how you do things. Uh, it's not the manner in which you do things. It's that you do it with love and try and help people feel the love of God through your priesthood service. Okay. I think that's generally, that's fine. I've got no problem with that, but all of a sudden now it's almost like this story is inserted into a place where it doesn't really belong, but it's coming in there and it's coming in there in such a strange way and told in such a strange way that, you know, it just, it just doesn't, it's, it's unusual. I think you'll see what I mean when you, um, when you listen to it. So that's enough uh, preface, I think. If you got 7.40, uh, no, before yep. it, so we can lead into it by 10 seconds so you can see how strangely it really doesn't fit. Okay. Uh, let's go here and I've got it at 7.30. Yes, and this is right when he's finishing talking about giving the sacrament at a care center for senior citizens and this lady just being so happy and grabbing his sleeve and saying thank you thank you all right here we go for those he serves to know of the lord's love but because his service has been in the lord's name the result has been the same the same wonderful result comes when i pray for it before i give a priesthood blessing to someone who is ill or in a time of need it happened once in a hospital when impatient doctors urged me more than urged me, ordered me to hurry and get out of the way as they wanted to do their work rather than giving me an opportunity to give a pre- the priesthood blessing. I, I stayed and I did. And that little girl who I blessed that day, who the doctors had thought would die, uh, lived. Uh, I am grateful at this moment that I that day uh, didn't let my own feelings get in the way, but I felt that the Lord wanted that little girl to have a blessing and I knew what the blessing was and I blessed her to be healed and she was. This happened many times as I have given a blessing to someone apparently near death with family members surrounding the bed hoping for a blessing of healing. Even if I only a moment, I always pray to know what blessing the Lord has in store that I can give in his name. 
And I asked to know how he wants to bless that person and not what I or the people standing nearby want. My experience is that even when the blessing is not what the others desire for themselves or their loved ones, the spirit touches hearts to experience acceptance and comfort rather than disappointment. Okay, there you the go. same inspiration comes when patriarchs fast. All right. Okay. So uh, do you see what I mean about this being so strangely put in there? He doesn't tell the story in terms of setting up a story and leading us into the story. Uh, I mean, like the, the speaker right in front of him, right? The, the Gifford fellow, the, uh, the NFL player. He told mm -hmm. the story, how it happened, how he got there, what it was that he was doing. He tells the story. President Irene doesn't tell the story. It's just like it's thrown in there and all of a sudden you're in the middle of the, the hospital and the hospital room with him, with this girl. And that's where his story starts. It happened one time when I was doing this and the, the, the doctors are ordering me out of the room and he doesn't say why he's there or how he came to be there or what's wrong with the girl. But all of a sudden it's just there. And then um, let me ask you, first off, what do you think about the way it's told? Well, when I heard this story, I was like, I guess President Irene is trotting out his one miracle again, because if you follow President Irene's discourses, his various talks, he uh, talks about this girl multiple times, and it always has the same elements. He's in there, he's trying to give the blessing, and the doctors hate him. The doctors are like, well, finish what you're doing, and the doctors are disgusted with him. And sometimes he'll be like, the doctors are angry with me. And other times, like, the doctors are like, just finishing what you're going to do, because she's about to die. So there's always that dramatic tension, and so it, it adds to the story. And then there's always the, you know, he gives her the blessing, and then later, and then pause and cry. Uh, he uh, then she walks down. She's able, he's able to watch her walk down the aisle at church, you know, months later. And so I'm just, I don't know. There's these things like when you, when you, when you hear a magic trick, or you see a magic trick the first time you're dazzled and then you see it again and it's done a little bit differently. And maybe you catch the guy like putting the card in his sleeve or something. And you're like, Oh, then you see it again and you're like, there's no magic here. This is just the same trick. I know how it's done. Well, every time he tells this story, I kind of feel that way. I'm like, okay, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you're, you're doing the, the thumb trick that you do to a kid and they see it the first time and they're like, whoa. And then after that, it's like, uh, okay. So I don't know, this story did not really hit me. I'm sure the way that he wants it to hit people because it is just him trotting out the miracle story with the miracle healing again. Like I even have a video on it that I was trying to find what we have. Okay. Yeah. Here we have, I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can cue it up real quick. Cause it's great to hear him in his, let's say if this is around 3:23. there's a video that I did on his emotional manipulation. So let me uh, bring it up here and Yu-Gi-Oh, you got to chill, dude. All right. I don't have treats. Doctors were saying, get out of the hospital room. Okay, here we go. His father continued to love him. was probably the best example we can, we can imagine. I agree. Yeah. I've had the experience of doing, when it's done that way, of uh, giving a blessing to a little girl. The doctors were saying, get out of the hospital room. She's going to die. And, and uh, <laughs> my companion, I put hands on her head. And, uh, but we prepared carefully. 
and uh, I, I, I sealed the anointing yep. and I said, she'll live. Yep. And the doctors were disgusted and they walked away and she did live. I was told she'll walk. Yeah. And the last Sunday I was in that city, that little girl walked <laughs> down the aisle. And I'm absolutely convinced uh, if we will prepare yeah. and, and, uh, and really see ourselves as, as coming to the throne of God, uh, then remarkable things. Now, the odd thing is, because you were mentioning how in the talk given a general conference, the great moral was that it doesn't matter how you do what you do. Uh, that's not as important as what you're doing. In that clip that I just played, it was from the face-to-face -face that Holland and Eyring did together, I think, in 2017. And the lesson there was that you have to wear your nice clothes and do things in a very specific way in order for God to see it as uh, optimally acceptable. And that that's what the brethren do when they get together and pray. They're making sure they're wearing their nice clean <laughs> ties and their nice clothes. And it was just like, okay, so now he's using the same story, but with the opposite, completely opposite moral. Uh, it's just, I don't know. That's why I find it almost laughable to listen to that story. Well, it is because here's the deal. If the doctors are saying she's going to die, then there's no reason for you to have to leave the hospital room. I mean, if she's going to die. Is this really what doctors say? Get out of here. She's going to die. <laughs> no. Maybe get out of here or she's going to die. Well, the, the thing is, though, like he went to the hospital, right? She's probably if she is as bad off as he says in these various settings, then she's in intensive care. You've got nurses, you've got doctors, you've got everybody trying to sustain her life. They're doing surgery. They're maintaining her airway. They're looking at her blood results. They're, they're doing everything to save her life. OK, so now the family. Now this, this girl has survived, she's now able to live a full life, and now this man is claiming credit for all of the sacrifice, all of the work, all of the training that all of the people in that room to help this young girl survive. You know, everybody in that room has themselves years of training and the benefit of all the people who trained them, who themselves had years, like this, all of humanity working together for this job of helping people who are injured, comes together to bring their art to the healing of this girl. And this guy's gonna come in and claim all the credit for laying his hands. And he's gonna bring, he's gonna roll that story out again and again and again, every time. And therefore, you know, we have the real deal as church leaders come and pay your tithing and do all the good stuff to, because we're the ones that do the healing. Yeah, uh, through through the God. Through God. I think the miracle of that story is, is that President Eyring didn't manage to kill this young girl by interfering with the medical treatment. Exactly. And he sounds a little disappointed, actually, because he's going for a perfect record. And this one little girl just screws that up, messes up his streak. Well, <laughs> by the way, you notice... <clears throat> you notice when he sees her walking down the aisle at church, we have no idea how long that took. Because oh, yeah. it's not the next Sunday. He says, the last Sunday I was in that city. Yeah. Well, we have no idea how long it was. I mean, was it years later? I don't know. Before he moved? Was it weeks? Mm -hmm. I don't know. But the last... It's, just, it's kind of like after much therapy, he could finally walk and talk again seven yes. years later. Like, we don't know how long it took. Yeah, and she's probably walking down the aisle with those little, you know, braces, you know, dragging her feet you're, behind her. But you're you're terrible. I can't believe you just did that. <laughs> what? I'm sorry. 
I mean, they do it on South Park, don't they? So anyway. This is true. Uh, but yeah, we don't know how she walked out. I, I'm sure she was skipping and dancing and it was everything was wonderful and beautiful. But yeah. but thank God he didn't kill that little girl as well as his other victims. <laughs> now, <laughs> so, but that's the thing. Okay, I want you to go back. Would you go back and play it on regular speed where he's telling this? Because he says it in the strangest way. Uh, I've watched President Irene for years now and there are certain things he always does. He does something here when he's telling this story that I have never seen him do before. And he goes, uh, 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 not once, but actually three times in the telling of the story. I, some people do that all the time. I get that. He never does this. I have never heard him go, uh, with this blank face. And I don't know if this is a, because of the teleprompter, if there's an issue with the teleprompter at a really inconvenient time when he's telling a story about a miracle, but there are some people who have looked at this and thought, you know, uh, is he giving a tell here that he's not really telling the truth? Do you have that? And I asked, I asked for it at regular speed just so you could actually see it a little so bit better. I'll go in at 740 uh, and regular speed. Here we go. All right. Listen for the off. The same wonderful result comes when I pray for it before I give a priesthood blessing to someone who is ill or in a time of need. It happened once in a hospital when impatient doctors urged me more than urged me, ordered me to hurry and get out of the way as they wanted to do their work rather than giving me an opportunity to give a pre the priesthood blessing. I, I stayed and I did. And that little girl that I blessed that day, who the doctors had thought would die, uh, lived. Uh, I am grateful at this moment that I, that day, uh, didn't let my own feelings get in the way, but I felt that the Lord wanted that little girl to have a blessing, and I knew what the blessing was. And I blessed her to be healed, and she was. There you go. That's plenty. It has happened many times. That's plenty. By the way, also, that, uh, now, I don't know what's going on. Maybe it's a teleprompter. All I can tell you is that, that he's if he's in an interrogation room and cops are asking him questions and he's a suspect in a the crime, their flags are going to be going off in their heads that this guy is not telling them the true story. Yeah. I, I mean, it's kind of like of all the different parts of his story, the part where he's specifically saying that it was a miracle that she lived is kind of the biggest uh, misrepresentation if, if it is something that you're just making up. And so that's going to be where you're going to hesitate the most. Actually, that part of the story I agree with. It was a miracle that she lived. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was doing his best to keep that from happening. I just, there's this... <laughs> <laughs> There's this idea that you have where I could just see RFM like he's been in a terrible accident. He's laying in a hospital bed. Suddenly, one of the quorum, one of the first presidency walks into the room. He's like, no, no, please don't kill me with your priesthood blessing. No, it's specifically <clears throat> President Irene. I mean, oh, it's... God help me if I'm in a hospital room and he shows up in the doorway. I don't want to see this guy <laughs> when I'm feeling well. So... <laughs> well, somebody mentioned somebody mentioned that yes. uh, they think he's just getting old. And when I saw this first, I was also kind of, I, I just saw it as a a halting pattern of speech that is more reflective of his advancing age. Yes, but um, it only occurs in this yeah. story and nowhere else. 
That's why I, I think it's interesting. Once again, I say, maybe it's a teleprompter. And I'm not saying he's lying and that he knows he's lying and this is a tell. I think he's told it other times where he probably hasn't demonstrated this kind of thing. It just seems very, very strange for him to be doing this uh, uh, three yeah. times while he's telling the story in the same like 60 second span of time, three ahs. Yeah. Okay, okay. So are we ready to go on? I think we are. We've got uh, Helena H. Hulks next. Yes, I could have uh, told you that without looking. You know how? Because <laughs> he's the council, the next counselor. He's the first counselor. Yes, indeedy. So what what has our savior done for us? Now he starts wait, it wait. off with a kind of a, a funny, uh, interesting story because basically he's going to want to talk about four things that the savior's done for us, but he. He leads into it with his story that he says happened at state conference many years ago. And if you could just play that uh, story, it's only a few seconds long. It's right at, the, right at the beginning, right? At the very beginning of the shoe. Okay, let's do it. Let's hit. There we go. And if I can get my mouse over there. In a Saturday evening meeting at a state conference many years ago, I met a woman who said her friends had asked her to come back to church after many years of inactivity, but she could not think of any reason why she should. To encourage her, I said, when you consider all of the things the Savior has done for you, you have many reasons to come back to worship and serve Him. I was astonished when she replied, what's He done for me? There you go. And look, notice that scowl. He does that that yeah. that resting scowl face really naturally, doesn't he? Yeah. So anyway, what's he done for me? The only thing I thought about this was uh, it's strange that a sister who's been inactive in the church and has no reason to come to church and has telling him that she's got no reason to come to church is nevertheless telling him this in the context of having come to church. <laughs> this is true. I mean, it could happen. It could happen. It just seems like a funny setup for the story to me. Okay, so now, now, he's going to go through four things, okay? And by the way, big surprise, Roman numerals in the yes. printed version of his talk. Because he's big on the Roman numerals, as we know. Oh, my Hashtag Lord. Not, not a legalistic religion. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And not a legalistic first presidency member. Oh, yeah. my word. So the first thing is the resurrection, right? We all get that. Second thing is going to be forgiveness of our sins, the atonement. Third thing is going to be Jesus taught us the plan of salvation. It's like he's padding this to make it four. Jesus taught us the plan of salvation. And then five is going to be, what's five going to be? Oh, he's going to take upon himself our pains and our sicknesses, right? Well, through the priesthood blessings that, you know, President Irene just talked about. So here's the deal. The deal is this, is that, you know, this is kind of a basic talk, I think. Uh, about Jesus Christ. I think it's all well and good as far as it goes. But there was one thing that I heard the second or third time that I was listening to this that all of a sudden jumped out at me. I thought, wait a second, did he really just say that? And I went and I, I rewound uh, a few seconds and I listened to it again. I go, oh my Lord, he actually just said that. So here's what I'm talking about. It's under uh, Roman numeral number three about Jesus teaching us the plan of salvation. And it starts in timestamp 8.10. There's a paragraph here. Now, listen really carefully and see if you can hear what it is that Elder Oak says that caught my attention. Okay, here we go. 
Because he loves us, he challenges us to focus on him instead of the things of this mortal world. In his great sermon on the bread of life, Jesus taught that we should not be among those who are most attracted to the things of the world, the things that sustain life on earth but give no nourishment toward eternal life. As Jesus invited us again and again, follow me. Boom. I know we've talked about this, Jonathan, so this is a bit of a setup question. Did you hear what I hear in the words of Johnny Mathis? Well, the thing <laughs> is, when I heard this, it it made, you know, I because what I think he's invoking is is that there's this, I don't know, for me, it was more, I felt like he was talking about the um, the woman at the well, where she, he was talking about the difference between the water that you give that'll, you know, quench your thirst for a little bit, and then the water that is everlasting, which is uh, what he represents in Christ. And so it seemed to make sense to me. So that's where I, I, I want to hear your explanation of where you see that there's a contradiction here, because that was the water, maybe not the bread. Uh, yes, it was. You're right. And I think the when you're talking about I think it's John four, the woman at the well, and this is John mm. six, bread of life. Okay. Which I could, okay. So if I'm wrong, go ahead and check me on that. If I'm right, I'm fantastic. If I'm wrong, well, we won't talk about it any further. So okay. no, it's where he says, oh my gosh, he says, we shouldn't be among a certain group of people. We should not associate with a certain group of people. And that certain group of people that we should not associate are those who don't share our values. Now, this is the way he says it. And I'm going to ask you to play it again here in a second, just so people can actually hear this. Jesus taught that we should not be among those who are most attracted to the things of the world. And then he defines the things of the world as the things that sustain life on earth, but give no nourishment toward eternal life. Put it together. He's saying Jesus taught that we should not be among those who are most attracted to the things that sustain life on earth, but give no nourishment toward eternal life. I was absolutely floored by this. Go ahead, can you play it again just so we make sure that uh, it's in the record? Yeah. Okay, so we've got a uh, timestamp. 8.10. Okay, 8.10. Our destiny in the next. Because he loves us, he challenges us to focus on him instead of the things of this mortal world. In his great sermon on the bread of life, Here it is. Jesus taught that we should not be among those who are most attracted to the things of the world, the things that sustain life on earth but give no nourishment toward eternal life. As Jesus invited us again and again, follow me. Oh, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I have got to change everything that I just said. Do you know why? Well, to me, I think it's the difference between among, what you mean by among. Yes. Whether you mean you shouldn't associate with them or it does, or whether you mean you shouldn't be them. Be among that number. Yeah, and I think that the most charitable reading of this, now all of a sudden that I hear it again when you're playing it the second time just on this show, is what I heard him saying was Jesus taught that we should not be one of those who are most attracted to the things of the world. But unfortunately, the English language being what it is, it is susceptible to different interpretations. 
And yeah. another interpretation that is based on the same words is Jesus taught that we should not be among those right. who are most attracted to the things of the world. And that's what I took him as saying. So I'm going to take away some of my excoriation <laughs> of President Oaks for this. So maybe it isn't the shocking thing I thought it was. Maybe it just sounds like it's the shocking thing. But, you know, Jonathan, the problem is, is that I think that the reason I went there is because President Oaks has an established track record of saying things like that, where he yep. talks about, you know, if you have if I have a gay son or daughter, you know, yep. uh, they, they may be able to visit at my house with their partner, but they shouldn't expect to spend the night. And they shouldn't. They certainly shouldn't expect me to take them out to dinner and introduce right. them to my friends. You remember that, right? Them. Yeah, yeah. No, that, and I can totally see where you would say that this is just another example of using Christ to justify, um, you know, cutting people out of your life. Uh, if you interpret it the way that uh, you were talking about, where you don't want to be, you know, you don't want to mingle with those people. Um, which is, you know, antithetical to Christ's message. But the, the same is true of all those past talks where Dallin Oaks has tacitly taught that, um, is that it's an unchristian teaching. So um, I, I think it is good to give him the most charitable interpretation in this particular talk. Yeah, I do too. And I want to do that. I always try and be as charitable and as reasonable as I can. Uh, other people may differ that that's my approach, but I do try to be, and I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, but I will comment that it is because of his record of saying things that are exclusive and that we should not be around people who do not reflect our values, even if there are children, at least yeah. in certain circumstances, we shouldn't be around them. That That is what led me to interpret this in the manner that I did. But I do want to give him the charitable interpretation and just say that what he was saying then probably was, Jesus taught that we should not be among those who are most attracted to the things of the world. We shouldn't be one of those kind of people who are most attracted right. to the world as opposed to we shouldn't associate with them. Yeah. Okay. Well, there goes my, that was my big bombshell for today. And it just went up. Poof, it was a dud. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to, to have popped your bubble or have your bubble pop like that uh, live, but you just saw it on the air. RFM can be wrong. And but frequently am. It in real time. The miracle is when I'm right. That's the miracle. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, but then that was all I had to say about President Oak. So really then I guess nothing is interesting to me about his talk. It's very basic standard stuff, uh, except for the funny story introducing it. But now we get well, to president. You know, that's yeah. the thing is like, you know, it's a good Oaks talk when, you know, you don't have to go and curl up in the fetal position and cry about your life afterwards. <laughs> oh, President Nelson, we're now at the end right. of the general conference session. We're doing pretty good. We're at 905. And there really isn't that much to say about this, I think. Let me just scroll down here. Okay. It's called What We Are Learning and Will Never Forget. Now, here's the deal with President Nelson. And this is what I think is going on. It's going on in this talk. By the way, this is my psychoanalysis of President Nelson. Okay. Oh, another thing about President Nelson what does President Nelson think when he's sitting there and President Eyring is talking and saying all the doctors are saying, get the hell out of the operating room so we can do our job? I mean, what side is President Nelson coming down on in that story? I wonder, is he coming down with President Eyring trying to get the blessing or the doctors are saying, get out of here so we can do our work? I don't know, but it's an interesting thought exercise. 
What do you uh, think? Yeah, I think he's siding with the most utilitarian uh, perspective from the velvet seat, which is <laughs> the priesthood blessing. Okay. Oh my gosh. So, but now this, what President Nelson, I think is doing, first off, let's say what exactly what it is he's doing. He's going to be talking about all the different things that we have learned from the pandemic. Okay. And he's not only going to do it in this talk, he's also going to do it in tomorrow morning, Sunday morning's talk. He's going to keep thinking and processing and talking about what it is that this pandemic means. And the reason I think he's doing this and perseverating on it a bit, if I may use the word, is that he fully knows and is aware that over a year ago, or actually just about a year ago, as at the time he's giving this talk, he called on the church and the world to unite in a day of fasting and prayer to turn back the pandemic. Didn't work, got worse. So then he calls upon the church and the world to engage in a second day of fasting and prayer to turn back the pandemic. Didn't work. We're a year later now. It's now April of 2021. And a lot of time has gone by. By the way, first off, I want to give credit to President Nelson for having the guts and the faith to actually call upon publicly the members of the church in the world to engage in the first day of fasting and prayer because he's putting it on the line. You know, he really must believe that it's going to help. Otherwise, why would you do that? Because it's risky when you start doing things like that. Because something could happen like it's what not happened? risky. It's, it's not, not risky. risky. No. no, 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 no. Anyone who knows anything, especially a doctor, knows that in any. So I don't know anything. There's there's a peak that goes up and then it goes down. It's like it's always going to happen. So if you're like, I need to capture that moment. All you do is every once in a while you do something and and you just like as soon as you think, okay, the peak's going to come in the next few weeks. Let's do something now. And then you can claim, because you know this always happens in the pandemic, you go up peak, go down. Then you can claim that you did it. There's no risk involved. You know, the only risk is like, you just, like you could do it, you do it and it goes up and then if it goes down, then you can claim credit. If it goes up and it keeps going up, then you blame the people, well, you didn't have enough faith. Now we gotta do it again. And so, you know, there's always a way to get around it. There's no risk involved. But a year later now, maybe, okay, maybe now that it's lasted this long, maybe, maybe, now we got to have some things to contemplate about it. But that's just my take on that. Sorry. No, that's why I think you're right, psychologically speaking, that that's what happens among believers, right? There's always going to be a reason for it not to work. And yet he's putting it out there as let's give it a go, guys. And I kind of felt like after the first one didn't work, there was some language he used. I can't recall it specifically now, sort of maybe tacitly blaming the members. Maybe you guys weren't, uh, you know, really together on this. Let's, let's give it another try. And then it doesn't work. It's a year later. And I think that he has been processing this. He's not mentioning. I mean, it's like a taboo subject. Nobody's mentioning mentioning the uh, the worldwide days of fasting and prayer. They didn't mention it last general conference in October of 2021. Yeah. Mum's the word. We're not going to talk about that. because Let's just forget <laughs> about that ever happening. And it's not going to be talked about here in this general conference, which I, with, I think maybe one exception tomorrow morning from some poor guy who didn't get the memo. But he's not talking about it, but I think this is the result of his processing it because now he's going to say, why? Okay, I'm in touch with God's will. 
God reveals his will to me in the bedroom at night. You know, the pad. As long as paper. as long as Wendy's stepped out by then, you know, Wendy's got to get, get out. out of the room so the priesthood can flow. Well, that sounded awful, but get the, he's in touch with God, right? God's revealing his will to him. Obviously, God wanted him to call for the days of fasting and prayer because he did it, but maybe he did it on his own. Regardless, it didn't work. Why? Because God didn't want to turn it back. If God had wanted to turn it back, God would turn it back. So God did not want to turn this back. And it's been with us for a year. So why, why, why? Why has God wanted it for a year in spite of the two days of fasting and prayer? And this is part of the processing now when he gives a talk at the end of priesthood session on that very subject. What have we learned through the days of fasting and prayer? So if you can start at uh, 00.58, it's early on in his talk. And he's talking about all the losses that we have experienced and people have experienced during the uh, the crisis because God didn't turn it back in response to the two days of fasting and prayer. But here's where he turns it to, uh, what have we learned? Okay. It will not have been in vain. This morning we have heard from church leaders who come from every populated continent on earth. Hang on a second. Truly the blessings of the that's his talk from the end of the Sunday morning session you have. Are you there? My dear Sorry brethren. I pulled up the wrong one. Uh, what okay. we are learning. Are you amazing? Are you amazed here? Because I have studied this so well, so well, my friend, that I wasn't even looking at the screen. I was looking <laughs> at my notes. And based upon what he said, this morning we have heard from these. And I wait a second. Wrong talk. Yep, okay, yep, but the yep, right yep. guy, okay. it's the right guy. Here, Here we he go. is, yeah. 0058. You got it. Ben, amid the losses we have experienced, there are also some things we have found. Some have found deeper faith in our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Many have found a fresh perspective on life, even an eternal perspective. You may have found stronger relationships with your loved ones, and with the Lord. I hope you have found an increased ability to hear him and receive personal revelation. Difficult trials often provide opportunities to grow that would not have come in any other way. Think back on the past two years. How have you grown? What have you learned? You might initially wish you could go back to 2019 and stay there. But if you look at your life prayerfully, I believe you will see many ways in which the Lord has been guiding you through this time of hardship, helping you to become a more devoted, more converted man, a true man of God. There you go. Hmm. So, so he's looking at what is it that we have learned? Have we grown in faith in God? Because he didn't answer the, the prayers of the saints to turn away the mm -hmm. COVID pandemic. That typically doesn't engender faith, usually the reverse. What have you learned, he asks. Well, I've learned that God doesn't answer prayers. I'm not sure what he's learned, but he's, I, I don't want to be too sarcastic here. I have learned that God does not answer the prayers of the combined saints in days of fasting and prayer. I have learned that. I think what he is saying he has learned is that there must be ulterior motives that God has for not doing so. And now we're going to talk about what those might be to help us grow, to help us learn and to help us become more faithful and more converted. 
Yeah, and this is part of the heads I win, tails you lose aspect of the way they deal with natural disasters, which is they do some religious thing, day of fast or whatever, and if it works and and it happens to coincide with things going away, then they'll claim that as a miracle. If it doesn't work, then they'll talk about how God is teaching you something and you've got to devote yourself more to what we tell you God wants you to do. And that's just how it uh, how it plays out. So this is him, you know, going in on the other side. Right. And these this these are as old as the earth and belief in God, you know, mm-hmm. because things don't happen. God doesn't answer prayers. He doesn't respond to sacrifices in the way you want him to. So why not? Well, it's not because God doesn't exist. That's off the table, right? We know that's true. Yeah. It's not because he can't. He doesn't have the power to. We know that's true. It's off the table. So it must be something about us right? Either we're not doing everything we're supposed to do in order to make it work and to have them honor the sacrifice and the prayer, or there's something we are supposed to learn that is more important than God honoring the sacrifice and the prayer. And so if we get to 2.56, President Nelson comes up to the old tried and true thing that we are supposed to learn through this experience. All right, let's listen. My dear brothers, I testify that he has been and is indeed leading us along as we seek to hear him. He wants us to grow and to learn even through and perhaps especially through adversity. Adversity is a great teacher. What have you learned in the past two years that you always want to remember? Your answers will be unique to you. But may I suggest four lessons I hope we have all learned and will never forget. Boom. Okay, so these are the lessons we've learned. Primarily through adversity. This is as old as the hills and twice as dusty. By the way, there's some truth to it, which is why it hangs around, right? But we learn through adversity, you know, the growing soul is watered best by tears of sadness as the old Arab proverb has it. You've got Shakespeare talking about sweet are the uses of adversity, which like the toad, ugly and venomous, wears yet a precious jewel in his head. Thank you very much. Um, I love your Shakespeare. Yes, I'm just trying to do a British accent without overdoing a British accent. It probably sounds like, I don't know, not very good. But you sounded like Richard Burton. I can do a Richard Burton. <laughs> Call me Elizabeth. Okay, so so there's, there's the Shakespeare for tonight's show. But now his lessons, his lessons, he got four lessons, right? That we've learned. Lesson one, the home is the center of faith and worship. Second lesson, we need each other. This is uh, plumbing deeply in this talk for lessons. <laughs> we need each other. Sorry, sorry. Wait, did you want to catch that timestamp oh, 633 in the point? Okay. Uh, you're just, you're you. giving us an overview of the great uh, sage, the wisdom of the ages that he's yes. conveying here. I, I am so doing that. Lesson three, your priesthood quorum is meant for more than just a meeting. I think that's probably good. Yeah. Uh, we'll skip that part, by the for... way. It's meant what? for Angry Birds in the back row. <laughs> angry Birds in the back row. And Sudoku. Do you know how I learned Sudoku? No. At a state conference. Oh, yeah. Where I'm sitting there with my teenage daughter, right? On the metal chairs in the back. And the, the speakers are after talking. And I look over and she's doing this weird thing and this weird diet. I said, what are you doing? She goes, it's called Sudoku. I said, show me how to do that. So that's... <laughs> 
<laughs> that's where I learned how to play so Sudoku as well. Um, now we don't I know have... why you went apostate. I mean, you got there, you were there at the metal seats, like the real religious people get there in the pews for the state conference. And the really, really religious people get there super early, put their scriptures on the front rows, and then leave and come back five minutes after the meeting has started. This is true. <laughs> I, mean, I, could, I, I, I wouldn't do that because that, that involves getting up early. I was very much, I was, it's state conference. We've given permission to stay home this weekend. All right, that's good. Actually, truth be told, they probably didn't get up early. What it was was that they had their their husbands or whoever have to be in the early priesthood meetings, right? Yeah. Yep, and they yep, had yep. them stick them out there. Okay, so lesson four, we hear Jesus Christ better when we are still. So we'll talk about that a little bit as well. But here's the thing, and hopefully uh, this is not going to be a big dud like uh, President Oaks was. <laughs> Maybe I've read this one wrong as well. Let me see here. Um, okay, it was going to be... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the thing where he's talking under number one, the home is the center of faith and worship. Now, we all know that uh, the church a few years back under President Nelson started this home-centered and church-supported worship, right? When they cut back right, from right, right. three hours to two hours. And we all know that President Nelson had no clue that this pandemic was coming, right? He even said as much in his opening statements in the April 2020 General Conference, which we've played before, where, where he said, when I, when I said six months ago, this is going to be a conference like any other, I had no idea I'd be addressing an empty room, right? Because it was going to be about the the bicentennial of the first vision. Okay, that's what he meant. So he was he was charmingly open about that, I thought. But it's just too irresistible to have started this family-centered gospel study several years ago, and then to have the pandemic where everybody's locked up at home. It is so irresistible that even President Nelson finds himself playing the game about how this was revelation. And he does it sort of tangentially, but you'll hear what I, I mean when you play timestamp 6.33. All right, let's do it. Have you ever wondered why the Lord wants us to make our homes the center of gospel learning and gospel living? It is not just to prepare us for and help us through a pandemic. Boom. <laughs> that, is, that is a leading a leading statement with a foregone conclusion embedded into it. <laughs> exactly. He's not, he's not going to come out and say, well, he did it in order to prepare us for the pandemic. No. And he's not going to say it is not because he did it to prepare us to help us through. No, to help us through the pandemic. He's going to say it is not just to prepare us for and help us yes. through a pandemic. So, yes, you're right. The assertion that he wants to make is already embedded as a fact. It's uh, yeah. basically uh, art. It's an argument based upon evidence that has not been established. Okay, attorney RFM. Well, you know what I mean, right? If you yeah, start making yeah, an totally. argument based on a fact that you haven't established, then you got to go back and you should be establishing yeah. that fact. But he doesn't want to be put to that. So no. it's just too tempting for him. So with this statement, he is communicating to me and the audience that, yeah, he is taking credit for having seen the pandemic coming, at least to the extent that God directed him to establish these family-centered study groups, which really means, I mean, all it meant was we're cutting church back from three hours to two hours, 
By the way, I never in my life saw more people more excited about having less of something that they love so much. Yeah. Well, but and, and President three, Nelson's not what? alone in this. In like Sherry Dew in the opening keynote talk for the recent BYU uh, women's conference that I think you and Bill may have looked at some of her statements, but one of the things she talks about is this notion that all of these things that President Nelson did at the beginning of his reign uh, were to prepare us for the pandemic. And that included home-centered church, it included ministering, and it included two-hour church, you know, getting used to having less actual church time in your life. So um, that's the thing is that, you know, because it's all retrospective, you can just go back, interpret it as that. And then there's even this notion that prophets don't even have to know the mind of God in following his will. And that's the, that's the paradigm they teach us. It's the Abrahamic test. You are supposed to do what God commands, even if you don't understand it. And then you look at the priesthood ban. It's like, well, even the, the don't even try to understand it. Cause if you're going to make, try to make explanations, then you're going to get it wrong. And then we'll have like the whole priesthood issue thing. But um, you know, so the, now present, the, the prophet now can now just take it as a, a fact now that even if he didn't understand it at the time that those changes were in preparation for the pandemic, it was God acting through him, therefore validating his claim to be God's vessel, God's, voice on earth exactly and of course when you say something like that it sort of leads to the natural next question which is okay so if god's going to prepare the church for a pandemic god must know the pandemic is coming if he's got elder or president nelson's ear enough to do the home center church couldn't he just as well tell him hey psst, hey bud there's a pandemic coming pass the word then he would rob President Nelson of his agency. That's how that works. How would he rob him of his agency? Just give us a clue. Let us know there's a pandemic coming so we can, you know, store up on toilet paper before there's a run at the local grocery market. I'm sure that they, what happened is he said, Psst, hey, Nelson, invest in 3M because they're going <laughs> to make all those masks. <laughs> and toilet paper. Yeah. Bounty. Invest in Bounty. But I wish I had done that. If I had known it was coming, totally. Okay, so he does. We need each other. Uh, that's lesson two and lesson three. Mm. Your priest and corpus. Uh, okay, we hear Jesus better when we are still. And I want to talk just a little bit about this because this is um, a point of concern for me. In that, I've grown up in this church. My gosh, since I was eighteen. It's the still small voice this, it's the still small voice that, it's this whole idea of reducing God's communication to us to such a low decibel that it really cannot be distinguished from anything else that's going on in our head, which is why it's all the question is always asked of these uh, devotionals and face-to-face -face things, how can I tell the difference between the Holy Ghost and the thoughts in my head? Because you've reduced it to that point that I can't tell the difference. And then they give some kind of uh, uh, an explanation, which really doesn't answer the question. Uh, here is President Nelson saying the same thing because he says, we hear Jesus Christ better when we are still. Timestamp 1220. All right, I got it. Let's bring his image up. Here we go. For a time, the pandemic has canceled activities that would normally fill our lives. Soon we may be able to choose to fill that time again with the noise and commotion of the world. Or we can use our time to hear the voice of the Lord, whispering his guidance 
comfort and peace. Quiet time is sacred time, time that will facilitate personal revelation and instill peace. There you go. So can I just pause to ask why it is that Jesus can't speak to us in a voice that we can discern, that a voice that's different from our own thoughts, that a voice that is not so still and small and quiet that we can't tell the difference? Why all the still voice and quiet stuff? I mean, does Jesus well, have hold, hold on now, hold on. Oh, you stepped on my, my line, my line. Does oh, he have sorry, larynge- go ahead. Does Jesus have laryngitis or something? <laughs> okay, now go ahead. I'm sorry, I totally didn't. I didn't mean to, to steal, <laughs> rob you of your punch. Okay, we're going to rewind it so you can say it again. No, that's, no, that's okay. okay, that's okay. What I was going to say is he apparently doesn't have laryngitis when he's trying to tell some husband that his wife who almost died in pregnancy is about to needs to go pump out a couple more babies till <laughs> till a boy arrives because he's willing to hear an audible voice for that well you're right and i think the voice that that sister lang heard was probably sounded a lot like elder nelson or yeah. elder anderson wasn't it it was elder anderson yeah elder anderson yeah yeah that was that voice she heard that sounds a lot like elder anderson um yeah so this is why this is why the question always okay i'm sorry i already did that part see i make notes and then i go off the notes and then i go back and i'm looking at my notes and i've already done so um but i mentioned this last wednesday but i want to mention again because i wrote it for this which is Mm. this is moby dick this is captain ahab who's the captain of the pequod he's got all these sailors who are very superstitious they're out on the sea they're having tough times with a certain whale And one of them comes back and says, oh, my gosh, this is a bad omen. This is a bad omen. And Captain Ahab gets really hacked off. He gets hacked off a lot in that book. Well, it starts with his leg being hacked off. So we can understand that. But uh, he gets so upset because he says, omen, omen. And then he makes this exclamation called the dictionary. And I don't know what that means. I tried to look it up. But omen, omen, the dictionary. If the gods think to speak outright to man, they will honorably speak outright, not shake their heads and give an old wives darkling hint. And when I read this a number of years ago, boy, did that speak to me. Because what Captain Ahab is, you know, crazy guy aside, is he saying, if the gods want to speak to man, then they will speak to them. They won't just do all this mojo over here or do these omens that have to be interpreted and give an old wives darkling hint. If the gods think to speak outright to man, they will honorably speak outright. So don't tell me about your omens. And what I would say is don't tell me about your still small voice. If God wants to speak to me, he can speak to me like one man to another, as we read about at places in the scriptures. Yeah. But he doesn't do that anymore. No, he doesn't. And I, I don't know. It's once you get out of the the bubble that the church is in and you start to see how this concept is used in other religious manipulations, the whole soft-spoken, peace, mealy mouth sort of thing, it's kind of a setup because it's it's like it's appealing to your own desire for peace and the sense of quietness that you have. And it's attaching that to now this is, you know, their, their control over you religiously. 
And then it makes it where if you want to say, no, you're as a bunch of crap, you're just you're feeding me a line of crap to get me to go along with what you say. Well, then they can now accuse you of having broken the peace of now bringing contention into the conversation. And then that leads to the accusation that you are acting in accordance with the adversary, not acting in accordance with God. It's just it's a way to use the rest of it against you. You've got to be held down under this blanket of peace and quiet. Yeah, and, and if it's a still small voice, then you are much more able to identify something that's going on in your head or your heart as being revelation from God. Because it's nothing that's really special or indistinguishable from those things. Hey, Yu-Gi-Oh, I just want to say one other thing here that occurs to me. Because, of course, this is from the Bible. It's from the Old Testament, the still small voice. It's the story of Elijah, right? One of the stories of Elijah, where he's up there, he's in the mountain, he's in a cliff. And uh, what is it? The storm comes by and then a fire comes by and uh, all these huge natural phenomenon that are unmistakable. And then a still small voice. Right. And the still small voice says, hey, Elijah, God's not in the fire. He's not in the earthquake. He's in the still small voice. Did I did I tell the story? OK, I didn't prepare this. I think no, that I did. sounds I, I, I agree with you. That's that's where we get that notion from. Right. Well. I think that that story is important not to establish the truth of that claim, but to show that what is going on there is a transition. And the story is signifying a transition itself. And what it's saying is God used to speak by fire with Moses, burning bush. He used to speak by earthquake, uh, children of Israel out in the desert, you know, the rebels, Korah and the rebels and the earth and it splits open and they all go in. And these are all stories that are accepted by the people who are supposed to be reading the story of Elijah. Even Elijah with the fire coming down, right? On Mount Carmel with the priests of Baal. But now the story is put in there and it's put in there to signal those days are past. God doesn't speak like that anymore. Those days of miracles are gone. And now all we're left with is a still small. So it seems to me that what's happening and what that story is signaling is exactly what's going on in the LDS church and what has been going on for some time in the LDS church, which is that once the miracles cease, we can't say that God is no longer with us. What we say is he's changed his method of communication for some otherwise undisclosed reason, right? Remember, mm -hmm. you know, the same yesterday, today and forever, except this. And now he just speaks with a still small. So at the same time, we can account for no more miracles and yet God's continuing presence and revelation to us. So I just wanted to mention that. Mm, those are good points. The um, the whole concept, it, it, a lot of the things in the church stick around and are effective and, and spread in the church and, and get entrenched because they have utility even beyond what the religious uh, imperative is. And so the idea that taking distractions out of your life, finding a moment for peace, um, cherishing that, looking for meaning in the impressions that come to your mind, like those are things that you'll find in Buddhism. Those are things that you'll find in just even non-religious ways of um, dealing with the modern world. And so... It's kind of like, you know, people can do what he's saying. They can take a period of time in their life uh, and, you know, turn off the internet, turn off their phone, 
meditate, do those things, and they're going to get some benefits from it. And then they're going to attribute those benefits now to the religious decree because of all the things that are attached for it in this, but they'll still get some benefit from it. So <clears throat> um, I, can, I can see why this is part of their messaging, and it fits in with the overall paradigm of religion and Christ in the church. And it's probably good advice for some people to do that. The thing that gets to me, though, is that uh, when he talks later about that quiet time, you know, some of it is a lot of this quiet time in terms of when you look at your whole life and all of the noise signal that church meetings and, you know, ministering, church meetings, seminary, having, you know, having to go and do church stuff so much time keeps people away from settling down and allowing them to then explore the questions and doubts that have been gathering up in their mind. And we're seeing that this time in the pandemic has given people a chance to go back and look at that. And in some cases, people now, they're stuck in their homes, they have internet access, they've got questions, and they've got Google, and it can give them now time to actually do this. In one sense, you could say, well, he's telling people when he says, give, you know, Christ can talk to you at peace. What he's also saying is, don't, don't, don't spend your, your time that you have, the precious time you have available, don't spend it on the internet Googling. Spend it contemplating the scriptures, contemplating conference, contemplating, you know, they're, they're not going to say that quiet time you should spend with yourself. They'll include listening to general conference talks, reading the, the Liahona or the Enzin or whatever they call it now. All those things are going to be acceptable activities. Uh, it's just the stuff that would lead you away from the church. Those are not going to be acceptable activities. Right. Oh, and that one other point I was making before, which I think everybody knows, is that when they change this home-centered stuff, when it changed from three hours to two hours, they also wanted the church to uh, have study in their home to make up for the additional hour. And that's yeah. really what that home study thing was. Home-centered, church-supported. You cannot say home-centered without saying church-supported because they always go together whenever they're mentioned, right? You got to do what the church is telling you to do and read and teach the lessons the church is telling you to teach in your home during that extra hour. So maybe this was God working behind the scenes. I understand that his ways are mysterious and he works in, what is it? God works in what ways? Wondrous ways, amazing ways, miraculous mysterious. ways. Thank you. Mysterious. God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea. He rides upon the storm, but in a still small way. <laughs> well, right, hey, we're, we're done. Dead? We're done. Right, we got, we got through the through. priesthood session. Oh, I'm so right. excited. And so hopefully next week, maybe a couple of weeks, whenever we can do it. Um, I mean, have pity on us, gentle listener. <laughs> I, do, I do lament the fact that we're spending more time talking about this than the actual conference itself is. I think that's some that's some legitimate criticism that Kwaku and his friends could offer towards us. Is like, dude, these guys are such losers. They're spending more time on the church about conference. And we, I mean, my own family's like that. They're kind of like, well, I don't have to watch conference because John's just going to tell me all about it anyway. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. But, you know, talking about it, that's the fun part. The problem is that in order to get here, I've got to slog through it yeah. multiple times pull up the scripts, go through them, do all the stuff that we do in order to prepare to look so polished, so ready to go as we do on a Friday morning. Well, um, I'm glad you do that because I'm just like, I read your notes. I'm like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. That sounds pretty good. I'll throw in this here. I'll throw in this here. I'll do some, what is that, Brooklyn accent? I don't know. 
it's the angel, the angels coming out. <laughs> so everybody, thank you so much for listening. Jonathan, thank you for hosting. I appreciate it so much. Yu-Gi-Oh! Yugi, thank you for being the the team mascot. Yeah, I'm sure he's left me some Tootsie Rolls over there to clean up. <laughs> You're obnoxious. Mmm, Tootsie Rolls, yummy. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, we made it. It's two and a half hours. Not as bad as it could have been, but uh, here we go. Uh, until next time, RFM, this was a talk on things and stuff, and can't wait for the next session. Thanks so much, John. Bye. All the sun on the outside Doesn't touch what I feel within When I've got you beside me Touch of your hand